Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Dude, we're on part two of the Greatest Punchers series, which means I'm here with my dude Eris Pina, copy box operator and just a you know, fight historian kind of guy like myself. Eris, what's up, man? What's going on, man? How's everything? It's hot. The world very is hot. hot. Very, very hot. That's word of the day, hot. <laughs> But yo, dude, people can be cruising to the beach, to the lake, to the river, wherever it is they're cruising or not cruising, and crank this podcast up, listen yes. with the top down, whatever case may be, dude. Got some fun stuff to talk about today. I think our podcast would be suitable at the beach. Nice and relaxing. Absolutely. Yeah, just every so often, got to make sure the kids plug their ears. Every so often. I got a potty mouth. It's pretty bad. But... <laughs> For sure. Um... But yeah, man, you know, the first one was so nice. We had to do it twice. Um, in the episode, it, there was a lot to talk about, man. When we talk about the biggest punches ever, there's a lot of ground to cover, you know. And I hope whoever listened to the first show quite realized that there would be a part two because, they, you know, there's quite a few names we left out in the first episode. Just, you know, we were just throwing names out there randomly. Whoever comes to mind, you just kind of say it. So, um yeah of course there was going to be a part two you know what i mean this is a fun ass subject to, to go over you know like we said before we all love knockouts we all just you know love a guy that's a devastating puncher who can just deliver it and the fighter themselves kind of you know fall in love with their power as well man you know we talked about how um when a, you know how a fighter describes when they hit somebody and they just feel you know a certain way their body torques and everything how it goes into it that they just know they're about to send somebody to take a nap for a little bit like pretty interesting stuff so here we are yeah and and as we were like closing it out last week and stuff like that we're you know almost kind of like going down a a short list of fighters that we forgot because there's so many like we could literally talk about we we could make like several different parts to this if we wanted to and heck we might Mm -hmm. even but for now just on part two there were fighters that were like prominent fighters that we didn't bring up didn't mention very much or didn't get to like you know really delve into and there's tons of really great punchers out there, obviously. So speaking of which, though, dude, I mean, I know you got your list. I kind of got my list. There's probably going to be some overlap. Who's won? All right. So here's a question. I know you had some boxing experience as well as I did. So when you got in the ring, who was the type of fighter you hated to fight the most? Was it like a squatty slugger or was it be like a tall, lanky dude? Or uh, Well, I was not very good with dealing with the jab. I mean, like I, I, it's like one of those things I was talking with you guys the other day where I'm like, you know, if I had known that then, like, you know, if I was as mature in my brain then it, but had like the same 170 pound body, like, you know, these, the meeting of these would be good, but no, like I, I couldn't do shit if somebody was just sitting there jabbing me back in the day. So I didn't want somebody just sitting there jabbing me. Totally. 
Yeah, my my worst type of opponent were the tall, lanky ones who just knew how to use distance well. Like I wasn't particularly small guy either in turn when I was younger. Now I am, but um, they um, you know, you stop growing at a certain time. But um, <laughs> yeah, my my the worst type of opponents were me were the tall, lanky ones who not only were they really tall, lanky, had a really good jab and everything, but they had unusual power because of it. So I yeah, think those was, tall, freaky, spindly freaky bastards. Spindly, yeah, man you know looks like they're a bunch of fishing poles kind of hung together or whatever but for whatever reason they just exude tons of power the guys i got in the ring with luckily didn't hit as hard as the guy i was about to bring up but tommy hearns has to be the first one we briefly mentioned him last week because i mean we're i mean there's some overlap with a lot of stuff with a lot of these punchers but but we didn't really get into it like talk and talk about it we just kind of talked about like I think how I got into the sport basically was, you know, watching Tommy Hearns really young with my dad. So. Yeah. You were mentioning that last week. And I remember early in my fandom, uh, you know, he was still like, just kind of barely clinging on active. Like, you know, he was, he was trying to kind of constantly come back or whatever. And already he was not at a stage where he should be coming back, obviously, but um, even so, I remember watching like ESPN Classic or eventually like trading fights or fight tapes or whatever. And always two of the fights that were on there, if it was like about knockouts, were the Durand fight and the Pepino Cuevas fight. And I just remember like watching those was like an, was early kind of like excitement for me. I remember watching those like knockouts and being like, oh, you know what I mean? Like just like holy shit those are some fucking knockouts you know what i mean like memorable knockouts and that was uh tommy hearns might not have taken out everybody with one shot or something like that but i mean you felt that dude's power everybody said it everybody said you felt his power you know just incredible puncher and it just went throughout um all the divisions as well man you know throughout the years as hearns got bigger even up into the late 90s hearns always still had that right hand but um same thing with me like Besides watching the ones I saw live with my dad on television, um, the first one that, that for a young Hearns that I remember watching, we've discussed this many times, the 30 Great One Punch Knockout video, um, Hearns Cuevas is on that. And, you know, that like the, the Cuevas knockout for me, seeing that as a kid, that was almost like seeing how someone would go down in a video game or in a wrestling match. Totally. It almost, yeah, like very exaggerated. You don't see a guy go like get hit like that. And then the way his body went, you know, kind of like a slinky, like he just you know did the whole like a worm right in the ring completely he's doing like the hokey pokey or something yeah, he's, totally. you know. he just know his eyes are cross-eyed everywhere Quave has never been hit like that in his life all right and before that he could totally be someone we can bring up on this list because he was a devastating puncher Quavez was reign terror on the welterweight division in the mid to late 70s man he was a beast all right um, hell of a left hook that that was his main shot more than anything. You know what I mean? Like, sure, he had a respectable right hand, but his left hook was his bread and butter. And it broke speed bags as well as jaws and eye sockets with very alarming regularity. Um, ask Billy Backus, who had his eye socket broken after just one round. Ask Howard Weston, a very, very capable boxer who probably would have been a champion in another era. Had his jaw shattered. Harold Bulbrecht, I want to say. Yep. Um, that was Cuevas' last title defense right before the Hearns fight. It's one punch, pop, and you saw Volbrick's fold, you know, like a piece of paper. Um, 
Yeah, not like a murderer's row, but a very respectable group of contenders. Very, very tough guys, though, man. All really tough, you know, fighter Pete Ramsey. Um, very, very tough welterweight contender from the mid-70s. Another guy that could have been champion in another era. Cuevas folded him in two. This is what Cuevas was doing to these guys, all right? Like, he was just absolutely demolishing them. And there was a lot of clamor by 1979 for Cuevas, Sugar Ray Leonard. That was the fight that everyone was ready to be made. And um, it looked like it was going to be made. After um, Leonard beat Benitez, that was the fight that it looked like it was going to be next. But for whatever reason, um, probably with um, Harold Ross Fields' money, because that was the promotion that put on this event, Tommy Hearns got the, got the title shot next instead. And that, I think Cuevas knew the writing was on the wall for that fight. I think everybody kind of knew. Like, Hearns was absolute freak. You know, the way he was, the way um, Cuevas was destroying guys in title defenses, Hearns was doing the same thing, becoming a superstar in Detroit. And he was knocking out a lot of the same guys Cuevas was. You know what I mean? Um, Angel Espada, Clyde Gray, um, Harold Weston. These are all really tough contenders that Hearns was just vaporizing out there and looking incredible doing it. You know, he struggled a little bit. Harold Weston gave him some issues a little bit before he got stopped with a detached retina. But um, these other aforementioned fighters, and Hearns just treated them just like kid toys, you know what I mean? Chew toys. So when the stage was set for this fight, man, I mean, it was everybody was really hyped about it. Like two monster punchers that this fight was happening today, boxing Twitter would be going gaga about it. But if you really, really looked at it, man, writing was on the wall. Everything, everything was just wrong for Cuevas. He wasn't a master boxer. He was slow on his feet. Um, he massively undersized against a guy like Hearns, who just had freakish dimensions for welterweight and. Yeah, you saw right there, right away after like round one when Hearns came out and just took control. Cuevas tried a few times throwing those swinging left hooks, but right away you can just see he was completely overwhelmed in what the hell was going on. And once that second round happens, you know what Hearns starts doing, right? That was the thing yeah. my dad was pointing out to me too. Once he started measuring you, just run away because you know what's coming next. He starts measuring, measuring, measuring. You're like, get away, get away. All of a sudden, boom. Yes, right. You better do something because that right hand's coming. And I'm pretty sure you can't get away with that now, not as much as you could in Hearns' prime, because most referees now would like slap the glove down or do something. But like when Hearns was able to get away with that, and most guys just stood there and they just kind of waited for their execution, you know. And he had a great jab too. It wasn't like he couldn't jab. It was just that, like, you know, once if you've if you've ever even just hit a heavy bag. And you kind of like, you know, get that you can, that's the range. You know what I mean? Like right there at the end of your jab is the, you know, and that's when you, you kind of understand and the same thing with Hearns, but he was so snappy and so like lengthy and like his hand speed was incredible. So, I mean, like if you did not have incredible head movement or really good reflexes yourself dude, that right hand was coming, you better get out of the fucking way. And a number of fighters found that out like really the hard way, but of course he had a really good left hook he had a really good jab it wasn't like that was his only shot it was just that was his obviously his sunday punch you know don't let him land that right hand if it was gonna land chances are you were gonna either go down or you're gonna get spaghetti legged and go down from you know a similar punch or a flurry right after that most guys with the exception of a very few were able to take a tommy hearn's right hand and just be able to fight through it hearn's was just a different animal um but the thing about that made him even more like difficult to fight was not only was he such a monster puncher, he was an incredible boxer. You know, you can't really, if you look through his record, name one time Tommy Hearns really got outboxed. Like you couldn't outbox the guy, you know what I mean? Like you said, he had an incredible jab. He knew how to move in there. Once um, 
he learned how to clinch as well after the first Leonard fight. Like, his game was even more, like, came to another dimension. Like, his body work was incredible. Hearns, you know, was almost, was the complete package. The only thing for him was that his chin could be tough, could be dented. And if you can get to it, you could hurt him. But other than that, you weren't going to really – you couldn't outbox him. Sugar Ray and Leonard was a match the boxer, and Leonard had to turn slugger to get to him. Um Probably, probably the only the only fighter <clears throat> I can think of that was like you know close to Hearn's prime that actually like had stretches of outboxing him was Benitez, and that's well, like yeah. okay, what's so what, yeah, no exactly. problem, you know <laughs> what's well for Benitez, but yeah, I mean, cool. so yeah, the generally speaking, you were gonna have a hell of a time actually outboxing him and outfoxing him. He was a hell of a you know he was very skilled. That was the thing. Is like, yeah, his right hand was scary as shit, but he was a really, really skilled fighter. Incredible amateur, uh, you know, famous on the Detroit scene, which we talked about in our Kronk show, uh, you know, more than once. And he was like a local celebrity. Dude, man, Pepino Cuevas going into Detroit against Hearns and undefeated Hearns at that, at that stage. I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing where, yeah, he wasn't like used up or spent to that degree, but it's like you'd have to think that, if if you're Pepino Cuevas, like you can't be, you can't feel like you're being brought into Detroit to win. You know what I mean? Like that's come on. You know we know how this works. We know how this game works. You definitely got a shitload of money to be out there for that fight, and that was you know that was <coughs> hard. But like you said, the writing was totally on the wall for what was going on for that. Um, Ken Tiu, I think, was making his first defense for the on the, the title on that card. Kronk's yeah. um, first champion. Yep. Um, Hearns, like you said, fighting fighting Cuevas, and then the other two fights were Ernie Shavers' wild-ass brawl with Tex Cobb, which is always a fun one to watch, and the very underrated knockout of uh, Sammy Serrano by Yasutsumi O'Hara. Yeah, man, that's, that, that is one, like, brutal guy just going limp knockout. Crunch, yeah, man. Caught on the ropes, just woof. Totally. Mm. totally. Brutal. Yeah, Serrano has no idea where he got splattered to. He's woof, you know, but yeah, it was a solid card. That was a solid card all around. I guarantee you that there was money lost on it too, because that's what happened with Muhammad Ali promotions. They paid wild amounts of money, and boxers loved it because they were getting paid more than they ever had in their lives. And this was like the you know the person they were looking for their entire life. But everyone was wondering, where's this money coming from? Where's this money coming from? Eventually, we figured it out. But we've told that story before i'm sure we'll tell it again but anyways i mean there's we're basically still telling that story today with certain with certain promotions and whatnot overbidding for shit and then you know that's just how it goes but um as hearns moved up you know i was saying like leonard had to turn slugger to beat him the first time otherwise hearns was going to beat him by decision um as he moved up his power stood with him and that's the thing that was like really fascinating you know when he went to junior middleweight, where I would probably say he was at his absolute peak, just same thing. He was going the distance a little bit more against certain guys like Ernie Singletary and a couple others. But at the same time, when it really mattered, he was still just flattening fools. Obviously, his most well-known knockout, the Duran Massacre. Um, Roberto Duran goes without saying, you know, one of the greatest of all time, but no one ever treated him the way Tommy Hearns did. Just we don't need to go into detail about it. Everyone's seen it a million times. But yeah, like, it's a famous, one of the most famous knockouts. You know, it's... It's just a gunshot. Just, like... You know what's so... One of the craziest things to me about it is if if Roberto Duran had not done as well as he did against Hagler, 
-hmm. Like, you know, had he, and don't get me wrong. Cause I, I personally don't feel like he almost won that fight. I thought Hagler won it, you know, with a little bit of room to spare, but it was mostly just that Duran was coming up and he gave that great an effort. It was like, he, he stayed in there. He didn't get clobbered and shit like that. Cause everybody was like, dude, he's going to get fucking brutalized. And he didn't, he fought back and he did very well overall. Uh, if it wasn't for those last couple of rounds, Duran would have won the decision. Hagler had to really push it. That was a close. I mean, like you said, I'm not. I haven't watched it in a while, but for the judges, that was a really close fight. Yeah, I mean, don't don't get me wrong, because it wasn't like a blowout. But I thought that Hagler won it with a little bit of room to spare. Even so, point being, however you scored it, Duran did well. He did way better than most people thought he would do. And but had he not. I, it was or had it just been kind of like after he gets knocked out by Hearns, then that's it. It's like that would have just been the end of Duran's career. It would have just been like a sad knockout. Would have been like, damn, dude, Hearns did Duran dirty like that. That's fucked up. Most people would no, can never recover after a knockout like that. I mean, yeah, like, they would, that's how it would have. Macho guys ever to see him get splattered like that was like shocking i mean sure i'm not saying he should have fought 15 more years i'm just saying that you know it's yeah i didn't you know you wouldn't we would have excused him for retiring after that or something but he didn't dude here's the wild thing yeah last night i was watching roy jones antoine burke of all things um our boy jay seclo uploaded it it was the full broadcast so um well then you got to watch it exactly but anyways at one point they were showing the people in the audience and there was durant it looked like it was still, you know, even though this was like 1995, but it looked like he had the goatee going on. He still looked really angry and he had jet black hair. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Duran still had almost at least another eight years of like active fighting going on before he was gone. <laughs> like after this, <laughs> including another title fight and a couple of pay-per-view fights. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, dude, so like his first couple televised fights were in black and fucking white, bro. Insane. <laughs> Like, dude, Jesus, man. And when he turned yeah. pro, like, if you think about it, he turned pro only a couple years. Like, he was, he almost, he almost, like, he's only a, a couple years away from Robinson's last fight to when he turned pro. Like, a few, you know what I mean? Not That's to say so... Robinson should have fought that long either, but. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Jeez, oh, uh, That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. And dude fucking stopped fighting after I graduated high school. That's nuts, dude. That's wow. nuts. But I mean, you know, to, to even be uh, in the era, even kind of touching the era of Roberto Duran as late as it was, was cool as fuck. But even so, you know, uh, Tommy Hearns just absolutely trashing Duran like that, though, treating him the way that he did, like nobody else ever treated Duran that way. Like you said, you know, that it's an epic knockout for a reason. And going up, like, like you were also mentioning, going up in weight, uh, I mean you can't really give him too much credit. Cause it's like, yeah, he hurt Hagler, but like he like broke his, broke the shit out of his hand hurting Hagler. And it was like, it was that, that was basically the boxing equivalent of what's his name. Fucking Thanos, like all that for a drop of blood, you know, like yeah, yeah, you yeah. bro, you totally just fucked yourself up and took yourself out of the fight. Just try to hurt me one time. You're this fucked. Reminded me of um, meteor man when I was a kid. Like, <laughs> right. There's there a scene when um, tiny Lister rest in peace who plays obviously a thug, tries to, tries to go against Robert Townsend and punches him as hard as he can. He breaks his hand, gets all shocked that he did that, punches him with his other hand, breaks his other hand, and then just runs away. But, I mean, like, Hearns hit him with his best shot. Hagler obviously moved. Hagler was a ball of granite. You never saw Hagler budge from anybody. And 
he did. He visibly stumbled, like not stumbled, but he was like, you know, he took a couple of steps back because that was a beautiful. Yeah, shot. it backed him off for a second. Like he was like, well, okay. But yeah, as Hearn said in his um, you know, legendary night show and the and the HBO legendary nights afterwards, he was like, that broke my hand. He was like, he had a hard head, you know, like, and he kind of laughed about it. It's true, like. And imagine after first round, you throw everything out there. You hit him with your best shot. You break your hand. Now you, you got 14 more rounds of hell to deal with after that. Yeah, dude. Well, and and I mean, like, it was just the intensity of that first round. And not even the entire first round. It's like the first minute or so is yeah. just like, you know, the the release of endorphins between those two guys and how much adrenaline they had pumping. It was like, I, I guess Hagler was ready for it, but Hearns wasn't, I don't know. But even so, you know, being able to, to make Hagler think twice, you know, a guy like Hagler, it counts for something. He obviously didn't get the win, but um, you know, he even, he did even score some fairly impressive knockouts after that. And in other, other weight divisions too. I mean, like the dude carried his power up. He had the stature too, I guess the, the body type like we were talking about, but he was an incredible puncher. Dude, he just, you know, amazing. And even he was able to recover after the Hagler, like thrashing after that. Because a lot of guys, after going through a beating, and even though it was three rounds, Hearns did sustain a beating in that fight and suffered a broken hand. And a lot of guys, mentally, physically, everything, especially you have someone of Hearns' stature and as proud as he was, and how big that fight was, as much shit as he was talking before the fight, that'd be hard to come back from. But to Hearns' credit, not only did he come back, he started thrashing fools again. And look at some of the guys he was taking out, man, uh, um, at middleweight. Um, James Schuler, who, you know, tragic uh, story will happen to him. But at the time of the Hearns fight, you know, undefeated on the verge of a title shot. And one of my favorite knockouts is because it's the way that Hearns, like, sets it up. Jabbing, jabbing those left hooks to the body, which is just like a whip. You just, and Hearns has one of the best left hooks to the body you'll ever see it. Cause like I said, he just throws it with just every, all the torque in it, but it's just, you know, it's beautiful how he just, how he just digs it in there. And Schuler obviously is like doubling over from it, but that sets it up for his right hand, which just folded him. Like it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, and you don't often see the, the tall guys throwing body shots too. You don't. And Hearns, the way he throws that hook, man, there was no one better. Like it's such, he's such an underrated body puncher. I mean, real ones will tell you how good Hearns, um, how, how good Hearns was to the body but to the average fan again like you said they think about his right hand more than anything but um that's one of my favorite knockouts Ron rolled down you know rolled down we've talked about him on other shows just an absolute brute you know from Argentina same mold of Oscar Bonavena Galendez um, and other just really tough hard-nosed guys that just really hard to knock out Hearns was the only guy that really bounced him around the way he did Hearns got hurt himself that was a wild fight but, you know, Hagler wasn't able to bounce roll down around like that. No other middleweight of that era was able to do that. Every time Hearns landed that right hand, her, you know, Roldan was on, was on skates. Yeah, he was, a, he was a hard, sturdy dude. He was a, one of those no-neck-tavin fighters that was just, you know, tough as shit to hurt. He, but he for what hell out of a lot of really good fighters, too. For whatever reason, Hearns just, you know, he, he just, I guess, found that spot to land. One thing that Hearns, <clears throat> I, I guess it was probably because of his reach and because of the reach disparity when fighters would try to like get inside on him and like, you know, go in, like go down underneath his shots and stuff like that. They often wound up taking shots like right behind the ear, those yes. kinds of shots. And that yeah, shit fucks later. you up, man. 
Andrew Mater is a, um, is a prime example of that. If you watch him, um, again, I, that was the first one I watched with my dad. He's Hearn sets that up perfectly. He lands a couple of really vicious body shots on him. And then he starts hitting him again. And then like Maynard kind of turns away as he gets hurt. And Hearns throws one final right hand that kind of like looks like he's hit him in the back of the head, but kind of catches him on the side in the ear area. Bop! And Maynard just boom and just collapses down in a heap and just lay there splayed out. <laughs> and you heard Hearns grunt too when he landed. Hearns goes, oh! Just like... Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was pretending somebody stole his fucking money or something. Man, he was yeah, pissed. Yeah. No, but um, you know, he had his ups and downs later on. I ran Barkley for whatever reason had his number because he was the only person to beat him by decision, as well as um that incredible knockout he scored against Hearns. <coughs> yeah, oh man, ball. yeah, that was that was just like so sad. Damn, damn. Only because I've mentioned before, and as you know, Tommy's my favorite fighter, but you know. It, it's I guess it, it's it's not sad in the sense that like look dude those are great wins for Iran Barkley obviously dude the blade uh poor guy uh nonetheless like you know can hang his fucking hat on those wins forever but damn just as a fan of Tommy Hearns it was like ah damn just one of those one of those guys who on paper is not in your class but you just couldn't do it you know, in that first fight, too, Hearns was about to stop him, all right? Barkley was sliced up. He was beat up. It was only round three, but he got the shit kicked out of him in the first couple of rounds by Hearns. And then Hearns started landing those body shots. Barkley was doubling over. And once Hearns was going in for the finish, that's when Barkley threw that right hand all the way from the South Bronx. And then came to the Las Vegas Hilton and landed right on Hearns' chin. I mean, an incredible shot. Hearns walked right in, and then Hearns just dramatically yeah his legs are just gone after that like that was the thing was that like you know th there were other fights where he he recovered but it was like once his legs went dude it was tough it was really that was tough a bad knockdown like he went down his head bounced everything like he was yeah he was completely cooked but, man brutal you know i yeah. just but i mean again turns to his credit too like he had a long career after that every time it looked like okay it's probably going to be done the barkley rematch when he lost that no then he, well, the thing about him was that, like, after he would, you know, either lose or have like a little bit of a hiccup, he would always just go on like a string of wins. Like, he went on the Duran, he did the same thing Duran did. You know, Duran was always being featured on Tuesday night fights or other ones, just kind of fighting guys that, you know, not bad fighters, but guys that clearly are not going to win and whooping on them. And, excuse me, shit. And eventually it would build up to a big fight. You know what I mean? And, um, same thing with Hearns. You see Hearns then on Tuesday Night Fights beating up guys like Freddie Delgado or Earl Butler or this one or that one. And eventually, you know, it would, it would, he would always talk. There would be rumors, hey, he might fight Roy Jones. Thank God that didn't happen. Um, I mean, look, yeah. I love Hearns too, but in 1995, Roy would have just ate him for lunch. Um, and then there was talk about him fighting for the Cruiserweight Championship. And that was much more of like a prominent rumor for a while, so... Yeah, I remember that after the Uriah Grant fight, for even after the Uriah Grant fight, for a couple of years, they were talking about, like, you know, he's going to come back. And I just remember thinking. He did come back, actually. Well, I mean, like, before oh. that, it, it had been a rumor for a while. Because I remember seeing him at, ooh, gosh, I want to say it was Taylor Hopkins 1, I think. Oh, geez. And there was talk that he might come back. 
it, something like I I think that might have been it. Regardless, I can't remember exactly what fight it was. I just remember, and he came back not that long after that. Yeah. So in any case, it was just like bleh, any bleh. But there was like any cruiserweight champion from the early '90s up to the late '90s. There was always discussion. Ancelette Wamba, who was um who was an early '90s cruiserweight champion, there was a bunch of rumors of him that he was going to fight Tommy Hearns. Didn't come through. Bobby Chez, they were supposed to fight. Um, Robert Daniels, you name them, Al Cole, Orla Norris, whoever. There was always talk that Tommy Hearns was going to jump in and try to you know get a title fight with them. And for whatever reason or another, none of those fights ever materialized. The only former champion at Cruiserweight that Hearns ended up fighting was Nate Miller on the undercard, on the off-TV walkout bout of a Nassim Hamed fight. I forgot which Hamed fight it was. But it was like something like the late 90s, early 2000s. So it wasn't good. I watched a clip of it recently, and it was horrible. Like, horrible. Millard wasn't throwing any punches. Hearns clearly passed it, but at least was being active, and it just was not a good fight. It picked up the IBO title. I mean, they're trying to make turn that into the new WBO these days. They're trying to insert all these new titles. I remember that for a minute. They were. I think that kind of lost some steam, though, didn't it? Yeah, man, like at this point, I don't give a shit about any of these things. But, you know, like, yeah, they were trying to kind of push that into the, you know, the four belt era. They're trying to make some some five belt errors. No, nah, we're not. It's not Imagine happening. Imagine if but. we start doing that. And then we got to look back at the former. I would love to look at the list of former <laughs> IBO champions. <laughs> now yeah, start, start doing a whole lineage of the fucking. Yeah, no, yeah. dude, that ain't going to happen. I right. hope not. Who knows? It's boxing. But. You know, Tommy Hearns, clearly one of the top uh, punchers of all time in terms of entertainment, in Our terms favorite. of... It's an all-time favorite for everybody. You mentioned your favorite fighter, nine times out of ten, some um, they're going to say Tommy Hearns is one of them. And yeah, dude, very beloved even now. And now I guess now he's got to settle for squaring up on Ray Leonard on uh, Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson. <laughs> he's going to... And Sugar Ray's out there wearing his Tommy Hearns Roots of Fight shirt, talking, you know, supporting his boy and talking about how much he loves him. I get Hearns is bitter. He totally won that rematch, but, you know, it's all good, bro. It's just hilarious, dude. The way, I mean, and yeah, I mean, Tommy Hearns, I guess, is just still, still sore about that shit, but probably, man. I'm sore about it too. I don't know. I think Sugar Ray could take him now, bro. You'd be seeing his IG videos and the way he'd just be posting. Yeah, I have no. I have, uh, unfortunately, I have no doubt as far as, you know, just, just listening to them and looking at the shape they're in. There's no question, unfortunately, that Ray, Ray could take them now. But hey, don't set foot in Detroit, though. Don't fucking set foot in Detroit. Um, moving on to another puncher, though. And it's a guy that, I mean, we again, we don't have to spend too much time on him because everybody knows about him. But he's another fighter who really should be mentioned uh, in this, in this conversation. That's Sugar Ray Robinson. You know, a legendary puncher, absolutely legendary puncher. Most it's, it's kind of a fickle thing when you're talking about boxing history, as you and I both know, the boxing history circles are kind of funky. Sometimes uh, depending on who you're talking to, you might get some crazy answers. Like who is the greatest of all time? You might, you know, if you were to, if it's like a big group of people, the consensus is going to be Ray Robinson. Yes. If it's a, if it's a small group of people, you're going to get some smatterings of, you know, Harry Greb and Sam Langford. And there's going to be some Ezra Charles's, maybe a couple here and there or something like that. Henry Armstrong, but the consensus overall greatest of all time, 
Ray Robinson. Is that and who you consider? What's that? Is that who you consider? I don't know, dude. For me, it's like the top five is pretty like interchangeable. You know what I mean? Like there's I there's him, I, I have him in grab. You can kind of flip a card sometimes with it, but Robinson's always been like one of my consensus. I just I love Robinson. Yeah, and I and I wouldn't argue with anybody. And and anybody who's got like a you know, a handful of fighters as their number one, I'm kind of like, yeah, I could see it. I see it for sure. You know, I think there are a number of fighters who have an argument, but overall resume wise, just purely resume wise, Ray Robinson and Harry Greb probably have the best arguments overall. Um, and Ray Robinson, like just going down his, his ledger, you know what I mean? Like going down, if you have, for instance, I've shown it before it's behind me somewhere, but the boxing register, really great resource. I, I remember I wound up getting that in like whatever it was, 2002 or whatever that edition was. And it, you could go through each fighter's resume and you could kind of like count up or compare like, oh, okay, this fighter fought, you know, X amount of fellow Hall of Fame famers or whatever. And it's always changing because fighters are getting voted into the Hall of Fame and stuff. But even then, <clears throat> Ray Robinson's resume is like incredible. It just, there almost nobody else stands up in terms of just bulk, in terms of how many fellow greats he fought or how many fellow really good fighters or even just ranked fighters he fought like he went through these divisions and so um you know that's that's kind of a really big part of the story the other part is that he was an incredible puncher in addition to being a great boxer and that he could uh hurt you and potentially knock you out with either hand I mean, I think that it, at some points it gets a little bit exaggerated because he has a couple of really eye-popping knockouts that are like, holy shit. But the rest of the time, it wasn't like he was just fucking sleeping dudes left and right, per se. He wasn't Julian Jackson like that. At least not all the time. But when he had to be. But when he had to be, or if you pissed him off, got him going, he got into a rhythm or whatever, it could mean your ass. Well... I think the, the, my favorite way um, of how it was described was from the HBO's uh, documentary on him. There was a segment, there was a part in it where they started talking about like, and it was, and it was matched with um, Wynton Marcellus, who was the, who was the music director of the, of the, do, of the, of the HBO documentary and played all the music for him and his, and his group. And um, there was a really cool piece. Like you heard the, the, the bopping right there. Like there was a drum solo started and Teddy Atlas was the one that started narrating. He was like, knock you dead, puncher. Knock you dead. And then the music started. You saw Robinson flatten a dude right there. Then they just started showing everything, the way he was moving, you know, flattening guys left and right. And it was it was beautiful to watch because Robinson, obviously, I haven't talked about it. If there was one boxer that matched jazz music as perfect as anybody, it would be Sugar Ray Robinson. They were just, you know, a match made in heaven and like. Robinson was just the perfect blend of speed and power and just of everything. Like I, you can't think of a, he, like he was born and bred to be a fighter. Like some people are born to play basketball to do this, do that. Robinson just was just genetically born. Everything was just perfectly in line for him to be a fighter. Like there wasn't one thing he couldn't do. You know, he had a beautiful jab. Um, he had a chin that was incredible. You couldn't really, I mean, he could be dented, he could be dropped, but you couldn't really just, you know, couldn't flatten him. No one ever really took him out in his entire career. Um, the only time he was stopped was because of the heat. And, you know, um, if he didn't piss him off, he 
he didn't mind carrying you for a few rounds or whatever it was, but he just knew, like, you, at his prime, it was impossible, man. He knew everything that was going on in the ring at one point, everything that was happening, where it was happening, how the flow of the fight was going, what punch needed to be where to get this opening there. And it was said, too, that, like, within a round or two, he, he already knew, completely figured it out, and everything was already done for. Like, it was just a matter of time. And it was his punch placement, too, man. Like, he was just fucking beautiful, vicious dude. If he got you hurt, he can viciously knock the shit out of you. And his left hook was really, really bad. His uppercuts were vicious. His right hand, his body punches. The dude would hit you in the kidney and can destroy you. Like, um, he's a bad, bad man. You know, there's a reason why they consider him the GOAT. His people love to shit on old timers and be like, oh, you know, they don't hold up. And Floyd Mayweather will whoop them and all that stuff. Watch any of his footage, man. Robinson holds up. Not only does his stuff hold up, it still looks better than anything you'll see today. And it's not even a question in my mind. He was, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, a multiple, a multiple golden, multiple time golden gloves winner. You know, he had started uh, boxing from a relatively young age, but he had said that he, he knew from a fairly young age too, that he wanted to be an entertainer mm -hmm. as much as he wanted to be a fighter, that it wasn't necessarily the fighting per se that he enjoyed or liked that it was, you know, uh, that it was like a task. There was something he that he could master and learn and be good at. And that that was something that he liked to do, that he liked to just like be better. You know what I mean? He liked to, he liked to work on shit like that. And that was one of the things is he had, he had really great footwork as just about anybody, you know, has, has seen documentaries and stuff knows because they've seen him tap dancing or dancing some other way. And he had incredible footwork. He uh, had some great, uh, rope skipping routines and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, easily one of the greatest rope skipping like entertainers and stuff when it comes to dudes in the gym. Um, he did, bro. He would even be dancing when he was hitting the speed bag. You see him, boom, and then he would just do like a whole like dance, you know, swirl, twirl, all this stuff, man. He just, he was perfect. Yeah, everything he did, it was just in rhythm and always just with a jovial, happy way that it just looked cool and effortless for him. And you just wanted to emulate that, you know. Our, our dude, uh, Corey Erdman, recently wrote an article on Boxing Scene where he mentioned this, that Ray Robinson, who, you know, knew, uh, who, you know, knew Miles Davis and who knew a number of other jazz musicians and kind of figured into that world for a little bit, um, Ray Robinson had also talked about just kind of the rhythm of fighting and the rhythm inside of his head while he fought and kind of how he figured out opponents and stuff like that and the way that rhythm dictated the way that he fought i oh. mean you could even kind of see it obviously as you're watching him fight but it also led to those brutal knockouts it led to you know walking gene fulmer into that left hook which famously by bert sugar and several others was called the perfect left hook uh, walking, you know, Rocky Graciano after being knocked down, rock, walking Rocky Graciano into a right hand that just, it, that was probably one of the best, like, encapsulated moments of Ray Robinson's career where it's like, he was pissed. He wasn't oh, yeah. having it anymore. He didn't want that fight going on anymore. And he was like, I think I'm just going to end it now. Well, not and only that, man, Ra you know, Graziano, we've discussed him and a monster puncher himself and a great fighter and kind of in his own way. I mean, I don't, I don't say like great, you know, so much is like, you know, really exciting and very popular. He just, you know, time of the, um, sign of the times. But anyways, 
yeah, that that fight was considered kind of like a dream match, but everybody knew that like at that point Graziano was already years removed from being champion and all that other stuff. Uh he was still a dangerous guy, he was still a really popular guy, and obviously punched hard enough that he was able to drop Robinson. And Robinson was being cautious with him early on because he knew how wild that Graziano could be. And of course, Graziano was throwing those haymakers as wild as could be. And at one point during the exchange, boom, that's how Graziano caught him. He caught him with a right hand, um, kind of like grazed him. You said, what would you say? Like over on the ear, top of the head. Yeah, it was, it was almost like a cuffing shot, kind of like it, did, it wasn't yeah. super clean, but like it was enough. But it bopped him and Robinson went down, you know, slightly went down for a knee for like, you know, half a second. He didn't even stay down for a one count. He just boop, got right back up, but it was considered a knockdown. So much that the yeah, it's crazy, but it was crazy back then. Sorry, but like every so often I'm watching a fight from like the 40s or 50s and somebody gets knocked down and they're just like doo doop and like the ref doesn't even say nothing. Yeah, but no, it is an official totally. knockdown. And I'm like, so wait, what happened there? What the fuck? But and yeah, like Robinson now, like Benny Leonard, if you get your hair must, you're gonna be pissed off about it. He got his hair must, and he just got dropped by a guy who feels he feels was inferior to him. Now you said he's pissed off about it. <laughs> so the one they is- used. I don't I don't know how true this is. Okay. But I mean it just it just cracked me up. And I know that I think they might have <clears throat> mentioned something about this in one of the documentaries. But they said that uh before his big fights that were going to be televised, because I, you know, not all of them were, he fought mm-hmm. fairly often, but before his big fights uh that would be televised, he'd he'd burn his hair, like like give get freshly, freshly burn his hair to I guess, you know style it just just right or whatever and that he would get pissed if his hair got fucked up <laughs> i mean i can see it man robinson had a fine you know had a fine head of hair absolutely probably the smoothest guy i've ever seen outside of the ring one of them at least he's a, he was a good looking fellow you know he's a good looking dude and you I mean, can see he, that he's a smooth guy impressed. you know what yeah. i mean yeah. miles admire miles admired him and um used robinson as as kind of like a guide to uh, to help him kick himself off a of drug. So I mean, you know, but yeah, yeah, I mean, as as we know now, there were a lot of demons. There was a lot of there was a lot of shit behind the scenes. A lot but at of least his public Man, image, you know, he's a very smooth dude. I, when I was a kid, I loved Robinson. I still, you know, admire the hell out of him. Even though, like you said, there was a lot of outside. When I when I watched that documentary as a kid and found out he used his wife as a heavy bag the majority of their marriage, I was just kind of like, you know, but. That was the sign that again, not to yeah, not to be like, oh, it's whatever, but like there was a lot of people back then who were doing the same thing, and it's just I don't know, it's not good shit. But yeah, Robinson was a womanizer, he did a lot of other stuff, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, what he did in the ring. And what he was able to do in that fight, especially we go back to the Graziano fight, once he got pissed off enough, how did he finish it off? It was what was like jab, 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 got him to the ropes, then bop. Hit him hard enough where you see the mouthpiece go visibly flying from Graziano's mouth and he just lays there like a fucking fish. Like he's like he's riding some imaginary unicycle, just like his legs just you know cranking and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor guy. Now, I mean, like you said, it's uh it was the kind of fight where like I think a lot of people knew going in. Graziano had taken a lot of damage over his career. He was more he was almost more of a celebrity at that point than he was a fighter or you know, his career is winding down. Ray Robinson, obviously, uh, in terms of style, he had problem with swarmers. He had problems with fighters who were kind of like bruising physical swarmers. And Graziano wasn't really that way. He was he was a crude slugger. You know, like that was 
that was his style. And so Ray, he might have gotten clipped, but it wasn't a good style for Graziano at any point in his career. Nah, not at all, man. Graziano would have got blessed in two to three rounds any at any point, whether it was near the end at that point or whatever it was way before he became champion. But at any point, too, though, Graziano made fun fights with everybody. He was just a wild guy, and that's what he was popular. He was a fun personality. He um, told it as it was. He didn't really give a shit, and he would fight anybody anytime and always made for fun affairs. Just so. just don't be Bobo Olsen against Ray Robinson. <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna get one piece to like fucking like four different that's times another thing, man. in like, like four Bobo, different venues. Bobo Olsen, God bless the guy, man. Great fighter in himself. That's one person he can call a great fighter because he was, and he has enough scalps on his resume to prove that. Underrated, yeah. Very underrated guy. And in another time, if Robinson wasn't around, he probably would have been champion for a longer point because he was a good champion including he beat Kid Gavlin, who was the reigning welterweight champion, in a great fight, and, you know, a number of, a number of other guys. To the point where Olsen was flirting with moving up to heavyweight to challenge, I think, either Patterson or Marciano at one point. I'm going to say Marciano. Like, he, that's, you know, he, he was feeling himself. You know what I mean? That I think little um, come Archie, over having little bastard. <laughs> I mean, you know, Archie Moore kind of stopped him from getting too, from getting too ambitious. But, um... <laughs> You know, Bobo Olsen, unfortunately, the one guy that he couldn't do anything with was Sugar Ray Robinson. And the first two times they fought for um, they fought for the championship, Robinson beat him by decision. But when he came back again, why well, was was the first two times or just the first time they fought? How many times they fought for the title? Uh, I think all four of their fights were. Yeah, they were right. Yeah. I think yeah. So it was the third fight though when Robinson came back and Olsen was champion, where Olsen was actually the favorite. And actually, rightfully so, when you think about it, because Olsen was doing his best work of his career at that point. And Robinson, not only had he just come back, people thought he was washed. He had lost to Ronald Tiger Jones. Not a bad fighter at all, but a person that Robinson of any type of, you know, era um, shouldn't have lost to. You know I mean, Tiger Jones was the type of guy you beat before you became champion or while you were rising and contender. So, and Jones beat him pretty legitimately. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people thought Robinson might have been done and Olsen would finally get his revenge, but Instead, it was only two rounds. You know what I mean? And like, that late that it. late career run is a big part of the reason why people were like, holy shit, he is great. You know, it was like, yeah. all right, he's pretty great. But then he came back again, and people were like, holy shit, again? And when you watch the way he did it, like, he catches them beautifully, too. They're in an exchange, and then Robinson just cold cocks him. And there's, like, a close-up video of it where you see Olsen, boom, catch a left hook, and his eyes are gone. He's unconscious right there. And he just, out. And Robinson, I think, catches him with a follow-up shot, and Olsen's out, and Robinson regained the title right there. It was like a beautiful combination, type of stuff that only Robinson could pull off. And after he knocked the shit out of Olsen, um, a very emotional scene afterwards, where Robinson finally, like, kind of, you know, dropped his guard a little bit, and he's holding the belt up, and you see him, like, trying to hold back tears. And he has, like, this fake smile on his face, and when you see him, he's, like, very just, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, there's, there's even there's a, a newsreel of it, too, I think. Yeah, it's a newsreel. Exactly. It's a newsreel. And you see him there and they're like, yeah, how about how do I smile, champ? And he gives like a fake smile, but you just see the emotion. He's like, mm. and he's kind of, you know, but like, it's heavy shit. Ray Robinson, too happy for words. Yeah. yeah. yeah really I mean, like, he was just kind of like to say to himself, like, you know, F you all because of um, everybody writing him off. It was it was a tough comeback for him. It really was. You know, I, well, I think that, uh, like I said before, he wanted to be an entertainer. 
he tried at a few different points of his career to kind of get away from boxing or to kind of, you know, uh, make boxing his part-time gig or something like that. And I think realized very quickly the expense of traveling with an entourage and his lifestyle, basically. I mean, that's the long and short of it. He lived a pretty lavish lifestyle, got paid a lot of money, but he spent that money. You know, like he, he lived that money. And so I think that he realized pretty quickly that, that, you know, being a cabaret or tap dancer, entertainer, band leader, any of those types of things was not going to pay the bills the way that fighting could. And on top of that, like I said, he stayed active when he was active, he stayed very active. And that's another thing that, you know, we've, I won't get into it too far, but uh, some uh, something that a lot of people discount, a lot of the his history types discount when they're like, you know, I wish fighters could be more active today like they were back in the day. And it was like, dude, they weren't just active because they wanted to fight. Like they were fucking badasses who were kicking their wives' asses all the time. Yay. You know, like th that's not the case. They were fighting because they had to fight because they were making money. Like that was how they made money. And generally speaking, you know, you compare the purses of the fights then to the fights now. It's the big fights. They, they don't compare, you know, for a number of different reasons, inflation, blah, blah, blah. But point being, yeah, dude, same for Ray Robinson. When he had come back, he realized it was because he needed that money, dude. He needed to fight. So, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't just for the glory or whatever. That doesn't make it any less glorious. But he was able to accomplish a lot in that kind of like, not the final, final stretch, but that final good comeback, you know? He really was. And he did need the money. Um, you know, he thought he'd be able to go into show business. And yeah, he was a talented dancer, but he couldn't sing at all. And just when it came to the other, you know, contemporaries of his time, he was definitely, you know, there was a gap there. And um, I think he quickly realized that, hey, even though he's a popular commodity, if he tries to be an entertainer, it's not going to, you know, his star will eventually start waning so he was still young enough and still had enough left that he was able to come back and it was remarkable how he was able to do it because you know there was a lot of bumps in the roads after he beat Bobolos and like you said he ran into the juggernaut of Gene Fulmer Gene Fulmer is one of the strongest most durable awkward just toughest guys you could ever want to fight hard-headed just yeah man awful and when you and if Teddy Brenner's book um it, what was the if only the ring was square was it, is that what it was called right uh, yeah 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 i think so yeah yeah and in his in his great book when he talks about the first time he saw gene fulmer and he actually didn't want to even put him on television you know he was like he saw fulmer training and he was like that's it yep. Boom. so there's a part in there where he talks about seeing gene fulmer for the first time and when he sees fulmer and he was like sees fulmer work in the bag and at the gym, and he was like, I can't put this guy on TV. He can't fight. He was like, what the hell is this? He was like, what, who is this? You know? Because if you see Fulmer training, or if you've never even seen anything like that, and then you see his style, which was like this weird octopus crab swings, that, something you probably see from the early 1900s or from like the, you know, just like a throwback era look, as opposed to what was going on then. He looked like he didn't know what he was doing. Just like someone just got pulled from the street, you know, that looked like he was strong and maybe worked in the fields, but had no idea how to fight at all. And Brenner was like, I can't put this on television. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, who is this guy? And they were like, no, no, trust this man. You know, he just looks awkward, but he can actually fight. Blah, blah, blah. Please, please, please. You know, and Brenner's just kind of like, well, I, you know, there's nothing I can do. I guess I kind of have to, but what the, dude, are you kidding me? Like, if he can't, if he fucking sucks, I'm going to be pissed. And then 
Fulmer ended up whooping the dude. Like he, you know, put on a very, very good show. And Breno was like, wow, um, okay. And they had a fallout the next week or like a week or two weeks after or something like that. And Brenner was like, called them up. It was like, hey, uh, your boy want to go in there again? And they were like, yeah, sure. So. Yeah, dude, I will. And I mean, actually, he had a winning record in four fights against Ray Robinson. He did. And, but it was that one, everybody remembers the one that Ray Robinson won. And again, that's the, no one ever did that performer in his career ever not like that not with one shot not with you know that he had been overwhelmed before but not not like that you know uh and there's a reason why it was called the perfect left hook the setup is fantastic uh you know the the way that it's it's the type of stuff that you teach in a boxing gym you know looking down at a guy's midsection to hit him with the hook up top you know, leading with the leading with body shots, like, you know, putting money in the bank with body shots, you know, for like a few rounds type of thing. And then looking down, like you're going to hit with another body shot and blip, just right on the point of the chin. Fulmer didn't even know what, what, what hit him, you know, like he got up and uh, I can't remember. It might've been, I don't think it was that book. It was a different book, but um, when uh, Fulmer got up, he was so like dazed and he had talked about it too. There's a couple of really good quotes surrounding that stoppage, like uh, Fulmer, the, his post-fight quotes where he's talking about, he saw Ray Robinson jumping up and down or whatever. And he thought that he was, yeah, he thought that he was working out before the fight. And he's like, what is he doing over there? Jumping up and down. They're like, buddy, he knocked you the fuck out. But, uh, and similarly, they were saying that like, he wanted to go fight him and he was trying to go fight him. And that he didn't understand why he couldn't like, you know, we're in the ring. Why can't we fight? He, that he was just messed up. He was so scrambled that he didn't even know what was what. And I mean, now we having these conversations these days about like, don't interview fighters after they've been knocked out. Like there was no conversation like that <laughs> back then, dude. There's a, you know, they had like Joe Rogan, like they have the memes and shit where he's like interviewing a dead guy, like same thing, you know, fucking, they didn't care. But, you know, uh, Gene Fulmer just had no idea what planet he was on after that shot, dude. Not at all. And you know what I always found kind of interesting? That fight happened in 1957, right? And that was was in color. Like, a lot of the video you see, that fight's in color. Mm -hmm. And that fight's from 57. So I always found that kind of cool. There's actually, there are two different bootleg angles of that fight, too, from from the crowd, where people had uh, video cameras. Like, and I include one of them in one of the clips I have, but yeah, that's wild to me too. The people were like back then in the fifties sneaking in shit. To, that's because pretty crazy. Like, I know there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people out there now, and thank God for them because it's awesome that do a lot of like you know black and white videos and they're doing like color conversions for them and stuff. But um, this I'm talking this was already like mm-hmm. color converted way way back on VHS and everything. You know, so totally. As a kid, I found that kind of interesting, even more so because. Everything back then, including the 60s, Ali Liston one, and a bunch of others were all in black and white. So for that the one to be in color kind of stood out for me a little bit. My my sister's 10 years older than me. I was born in 1982, and I remember seeing photos of my sister just a few years before me that were in black and white, wow. you know, or or that they were like Polaroid and all like, you know, crinkly looking fucking quality. We all, and got, shit. The, we all got the Polaroid, bro. Yeah, so we're, the point is we're old. But yeah, no, it's wild that that that, that fight was uh, in color. Then there's clips of that fight in color. But I mean, just incredible knockout, dude. Really incredible knockout. 
I mean, that's the and that's the one that everyone says is the perfect punch. It's probably the most perfect knockout ever, you know, administered on anybody. Um, and that was Robinson's. I mean, he did, you know, have his series with Cameron Basilio, but that was probably the biggest like highlight I would say of you know his second career was that second knock was that knockout of Gene Fulmer. Um, like you said, they you know Fulmer did get the better of their series, but Robinson arguably did beat him. I want to say in their uh, in their third fight, which was like I think. Um, which was a draw. That's what led to that fourth fight. So yeah, um, whichever one was a draw was uh, was you know honestly a draw, like very close. But like, yeah, and this was Robinson way, way, way past it. You know, what I mean, he still had that star power, and he had no business fighting up into the sixties. After he lost the belt to Paul Pender, he should have retired. He probably should have retired after the second Basilio fight, to be honest. But um, you know, Robinson being him, and he needed the money, and still going on, he still lasted a long time. The majority of his losses um came in like the late 50s early 60s against totally inferior guys some of them were good fighters but he still pulled out a couple of wins here and there he was able to beat ralph dupas you know and a couple other guys but for the most part he was losing more than he was winning he was getting beat up you know it just was sad to see and then his final fight which took place against um another very very underrated contender at the time joey archer and you know, it's 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 just like it's it's pathetic, man. Robinson gets dropped early, gets outboxed the whole time, and there's um, a famous story where Miles Davis was ringside for the fight, and we talked about how mile how close Miles was with Robinson, and um, they said that Robinson that Miles after Robinson got dropped in the first round, Miles started tearing up because he thought that Ray was going to get knocked out, and he was like, you know, kind of just like, oh my God, you know, to be able to witness that, he didn't want to witness that. And, you know, Robinson lost the decision and everything, but he said after the fight ended, Miles went to his locker room, opened a door, and told him, you know, in his really raspy voice, he said, Ray, you're packing it in. And Robinson just kind of nod, nodded to him and, you know, agreed. There's a number of um, photos from, I want to say Neil Leifer, or Leifer, however it's pronounced. Yeah. Apologies, because fucking incredible photographer. Uh, some of the most iconic fight photos ever him and high peskin ridiculous even with them at the hall of fame was cool man just just absolutely incredible photographer um Somebody but i mean I want to ask him. what's that so many questions i still want to ask him oh I dude ask him that day i'm i believe it was from him but he photographed ray robinson versus stan harrington okay and that was on that final stretch too and man well, it's yeah. Hawaii it's like right? what's that dan harrington from hawaii yeah and i want to say they fought twice i'm pretty yes. sure they fought twice it was like you know back to back like you know and it did good numbers in hawaii so like, let's run it back and uh there was just the photo series from it's like some of the most pathetic fight photos you'll ever see dude it's just an old dude looking like an old I know, dude. i think i know which photo you're even thinking of too he just laid over just yeah like, well and there's like photos during the fight and photos of him in the corner photos of him afterward and all of them just look so pathetic dude yeah. it just it's like two different totally different human beings it's but like that's the story of boxing you know what i'm saying it they is. say the you know the punch is the last thing to go but fuck that the dignity is the last thing to go i guess it's her first thing i don't know either way it's sad you know but robinson was still even though he he um didn't he like you know started developing issues later on in his life he was still active in the sport 
you know, later on. There's, there are photos of him still working out with Alexis Arguello and and other people. And he's, like, clearly there. Yep. Hand wraps Main off, Street Gem and stuff, yeah. Yeah, man. And it's, like, it's kind of cool. You'd be like, I wonder how, you know, what that looked like with Robinson working out with him. But, um, unfortunately, his downfall started soon after that. You know what I mean? But there is that video that I have put on Twitter a couple of times where – it was probably 1985 or so when J.B. Williamson, two, two random names out here. I'm going throwing some deep cuts, people. J.B. Williamson against Prince Mama Muhammad for the WBC Light Heavyweight Championship. So this is that era right after Michael Spinks and everyone else took off. This is that weird era of light heavyweights. But it's not what we're talking about here. Anyways, those were the guys that were fighting for the belt. It was in L.A. So Ali is being introduced first, you know, shaking hands and all that. Then they introduced Robinson. And, and by 1985, you know, Sugar Ray is already suffering from the effects of either Alzheimer's or CT or whatever it is. Yeah, he got at this point. And, um, you know, he's struggling to get into the ring and you hear them and you hear him, oh, don't let him fall out. But Ali holds the ropes for him. And a couple other guys hold the ropes and Robinson gets in there. And when, they, when Ali and Sugar Ray make eye contact and you see Sugar Ray's face just light up like a kid you know what i mean his eyes and his mouth like you could tear up watching that it's the coolest shit ever you know what i mean and uh, rob and ali grabs him and hugs him and whispers something in his ear and robinson is there with his mouth open and just shaking shaking his head shaking his head and grabs him and shakes his hand again and like it's beautiful shit man it really is and then robinson actually gets emotional afterwards too because he gets a standing ovation from the audience and you can see it clearly affects him some way and he starts tearing up and his face contorts a little bit and he goes in and if you listen close, he goes, my God. And he just goes, man, he starts, and he's crying. He's like crying. While a like Jay Edson, I believe it is, is holding his hand up. And he's just sitting there, tears coming down his face. I wish they would do that more these days, you know, uh, bringing bring old champions to fights and stuff like that. I know it's tough right now because the pandemic, but um, just in general, that's a tradition I would like to see more of. Just cool acknowledgement. Yeah, um, yeah dude. Ray Robinson was Ali's hero. And I mean, just to turn around and see how many, how many people saw Ali as a hero is pretty wild. Well, um, yeah, man. And I, 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 not to, not to go another flashback, but on Arsenio, when Arsenio Hall asked Ali one time in the early nineties, you know, who would you look up to? Who was your hero? And Ali said, Sugar Ray. And he was like, you know, he was like, my hero is Sugar Ray. And then, Arsenio Hall was like, oh, you know, he was like, all right, Sugar Ray Robinson. And Ali was like, yeah, that was my hero. And then he was He's like, like not Ray Leonard, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, how about you? And then Arsenio goes, and he was like, being honest, he was like, you know, the people that affected me, blah, blah, blah. He said, Martin Luther King and yourself. And Ali and the crowd set a chain. Ali shook his hand. And then um, Sugar Ray was like, and then Arsenio said something like, yeah, now you have to cut me that check after, we're after the show. <laughs> Man. There, there's a reason why low end theory name drops Arsenio so heavily because <laughs> that shit dude was a cultural phenomenon. If you wanted to be like, if you were in any, uh, you know, if you were especially in, in the black community and you were trying to make it and trying to get your name out there, you know, like if you went on the Arsenio show, that was you were there. Well, speaking of big punchers, you know who was on that same episode? Tommy Hearns. Because- was that the one where there was like, like four or five fighters out there no 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 i think for whatever reason it was just hearns it was just hearns and ali but hearns was wearing that the the, the short suit he was wearing a full-on <laughs> suit with shorts <laughs> you couldn't see it yet but the best part was 
he goes, oh, so we're going to bring Tommy Hearns on. And Ali goes, who? He goes, yo, you know Tommy Hearns. And Ali goes, he's here? And um, Arsenio goes, yeah. He points and Ali goes, starts getting off. Yeah, yeah like he's going to go get him or something. And Arsenio starts playing around. No, 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 you can't do that right now. And Ali fights again. He's like, he starts like, he was always on you know that's that was one great thing about ali is that you know not to get away from the puncher thing but one great thing about ali and i never i'm not gonna play like i ever met him but from every from every story you know everybody ever tells is that he was he he had time for you you know what i mean like and not only did he have time for you but he like looked you in the eye and was like you know he had time for you that's amazing guy um well, that's actually a good segue because speaking of, you know, Ali, um, probably I think he said his best win of his career was against a guy that when we were discussing punchers, we'd call this guy a freak. And when he's been discussed by everybody else, everybody else just call, calls him a freak too. That would be George Foreman. Man, I guess you can't really talk. We already talked about Joe Lewis, but I mean, just in terms of heavyweights that were – I mean, just thinking about it, like my brain is starting to hurt the kinds of knockouts George Foreman was scoring from like the early 70s, late, late 60s, actually, into the into the 1990s is just wild. You know, the the best way to say it was to go back again to the um, HBO Legendary Night series. The late great Ralph Wiley um, said it best. He's not normal. He was never normal when he hit George, when he hit Joe Frazier. I thought the world was coming to an end. <laughs> like, you know, and then you see Foreman, douche, and you see Frazier just skidding across the ring, and you see his glare. Foreman was one of the scariest, monstrous, like he, he, like he was something that came out of a movie, all right? Foreman just came out of a different scene, bro. They were like, no one had ever seen anything like that. We had seen scary men before, like Sonny Liston and, and other brutes, and you've seen monster punches like Joe Lewis, no one had ever seen anything like Foreman. Foreman was just like a, a, a mutant back then to people because, you know, he was bigger than the average heavyweight. Um, he was built different. He just looked mean all the time. He had this scowl on him. He had Archie Moore and Sandy Sadler, of all people, two <laughs> scary individuals themselves yeah, in no his quarter sure. co-trainers. <laughs> and it was like they were just, you know, they, it was like these two legendary fighters were just creating this Frankenstein and turning the, turning the wheels along with Dick Sadler of, you know, to, to, to terrorize everybody. And he was taking very, very good fighters, like Joe Frazier, not even good, like great fighters, excuse me, Joe Frazier and Ken Norton and others and just massacring them. Just like, it wasn't even close, bro. It wasn't like he was beating them down in eight, 10 rounds or whatever. No, he was just stomping the shit out of them in two, three rounds, everybody around. No one could do anything with this guy. And then, you know, you hear his background, you find out everything he came from, and you're just like, by God, no, man, the world is coming to an end. Who's going to stop him? There was a legitimate time where they thought no one was ever going to be George Foreman. Dude, and, and it was uh, 1970. So Goyo Peralta, you know, is a bad, uh, bad individual, man. Doesn't get talked about enough, but one tough ass dude. Would have probably been just an absolutely incredible cruiserweight. Just wasn't a very big heavyweight. Uh, you know, just just didn't he was just too in between, dude. Like he just wasn't big enough for the big heavyweights, and, and then he just came for light heavyweights too. He fought Willie Pastrano a couple of times, but just couldn't get over the hump. Yeah, he just wasn't. I guess he just you know just missed it that his time it was not his time. But he was a really beloved Argentine fighter. 
Uh, you know, he had fought a number, he just about anybody South American of note, you know, which I know people are going to hear that and go, huh? You know, but he trust me. over here too. Yeah, I mean, trust me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he put a whooping on some fools regardless, but trust me, it means more than you believe. Uh, but even so, it was like, dude, in 1970, two years after George Foreman had turned pro and he was, you know, like you said, terrorizing, that's a really good description terrorizing the fucking heavyweight ranks undefeated and absolutely just decapitating motherfuckers gregorio peralta goyo peralta goes 10 rounds with him and the fact that he went 10 rounds with him people were just like this guy you know gregorio peralta must have some sort of super he the point being that george foreman was such a puncher that even just lasting 10 rounds with him was getting you some fucking free drinks you know what i'm saying lasting 10 rounds with him was getting you some clout back home for sure because George Foreman was a monster. He's still a monster. He looks like an old man and he'd still beat the absolute shit out of me. All you need to look is like, dude, there's there's a video on YouTube. There's whatever. Go look at him, video of him hitting a heavy bag. I, I hit a heavy bag. It's like, you know, it doesn't do anything when I hit it, really. Like, I mean, it's on a chain. It moves. But like George Foreman hits a heavy bag and that shit looks like it's gonna die mm -hmm. yes like yeah. and i'm talking to even bigger heavy bags than i hit like and i'm not like i'm not like a tiny guy he's just a massive mountain of a human being and he's fucking monster dude we both i think put up the heavy bag videos where he just sits there and dick sadler god bless him because there's no way you could pay me enough money to hold that bag for for Foreman to hit it, and I, well, I'm being honest, I wouldn't be able to either. Foreman would hit it once, I'd go flying out the room. I sent you that video of me when I was holding that bouncy thing, and I got <laughs> nailed. Same shit would have happened. Anyways, um, I still got a stiff neck from that, by the way. <laughs> but um, that's Foreman would have done the same shit. You'd, you'd yeah, be sitting here sore. If you, if you watch that closely, you see a couple of times Foreman actually hits Sadler is clutching the bag because he has to hold it like he's hugging someone for dear life. Otherwise, he'd go flying himself. You know, I mean, he wasn't a huge guy. He was a stocky guy, but he wasn't that big. And Foreman is hitting it. He had a very peculiar way of hitting the heavy bag. Most people, you see them working the bag. They're working on combinations and stuff, you know, boom, 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 whatever, right? Foreman, as most people, you know, he, and he did, he worked on the same punch over and over. Like, he would just kind of, like, do it in repetition. It was very, it was very interesting to watch and almost hypnotic in a way. Like, you would just see him, boom. Boom, boom, boom. And then he would go to the next arm. Boom, boom. And just hit and hit. And a few times it would hit Sadler's fingers. And he's like, my God, man, I, I, how, why? And you'd see the dents in the bag. And then when he turned and when he goes and uses that as a pro, it's just, I, you know, and, and like if you watch early Foreman, like in his early career, like the, the first phase of him, people think, oh, he is an uncoordinated slugger because of what he was doing in the alley fight, just trying to knock him out. Like, no, there was there was a really good, a lot of good aspects to Foreman's game. You know, he just did about it in a different manner. But, like, he cut off the ring beautifully. He knew how to use the jab. He, you know, threw his punches. Like, he was the repetition that he used. He used that to his advantage in there. And he's strong as shit. Like, you just couldn't do anything with him. Anytime he got close to him, he'd shove you. And you'd go flying. That was a, <laughs> he was so physically strong. That's yeah. the thing is just he was so big and physically strong is that you know, uh, a Joe Frazier who could try to get under a lot of your shit and kind of like bully you because he could get under it. George Foreman was just like, no, 
no you know like, and, he's so and, physically strong and if you watch it he actually says that shit like um eddie fletch said that surprised him you know when they had the fight eddie fletch had already said a few times that he was like you know what i was actually a little like he he didn't like the way how frazier was training in jamaica he was out there singing karaoke because you know frazier loved to sing and he was doing a few doing a bunch of other stuff and and i guess ken norton was actually giving frazier the business in sparring that was that was the story. Norton was like beating Frazier up a little bit, and that usually never happened. And so, um, clearly, um, he didn't like uh, Eddie Fudge. Didn't like what was happening. So he was like, he tells him, he was like, listen. Um, he told Norton, he was like, enjoy yourself. Just stay on vacation. You, you know, you're done sparring. I don't want you fighting with him anymore. And he tried to get in Joe in shape, but he thought he had him in enough. But when that fight started. The first thing, you know, Frazier starts moving in a little bit, all that, and the way Foreman just shoves him once, and Frazier goes skedaddling in the back. Futch was just like, uh oh, like I don't think he expected that. No one did, and before Frazier went back too, everyone was just kind of like, ah shit. And then Foreman just started churning. You know what I mean? Walks in, boom, dude, like there was no stopping him. Yeah, there oh. was. It was there was nothing in his way to stop him, and that was what was so. Dude, look at Frazier. Just take a look at him, how thick his legs are. And he himself was like a, you know, a did bull, absolutely laborer. Yes. Yeah, he was strong as fuck. So that's that's the thing is that, you know, it's uh, it, I guess at some point it's just the leverage and the size. It does take its toll, dude. It does matter. Obviously, there are punchers throughout history. Well, we got some time to talk about more today, but there have been punchers throughout history who have been able to close that weight gap with how good a puncher they were. It's just that there is a limit to that. You know, there there is going to be some limit to that. There is eventually going to be like size matters, you know. And in this case, Foreman was just too big, too strong. Wrong style. I, it, it was just bad, man. There was no way Frazier was going to be able to do anything with him. And he couldn't. And the way in, you know, and Cosell with his all-time great call, down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier, you know. And like for all you can say what you want about Cosell about him being a dick because he totally was and whatever else you think he's overrated underrated whatever but you can't deny that was an all-time great call that whole thing was a masterpiece what he did in Jamaica that day like he just from start oh, to yeah. be, he was he was amazing and that was all him on his own like he he killed that but that and that just added to the drama of the whole thing oh but, yeah um the way Foreman just you know after he destroyed Frazier Frazier just looking completely just bushwhacked and Foreman, I mean, he celebrated a little bit. You, you can see him smiling. He, you know, he showed he showed a little. He was happy slightly, but he still had that cold demeanor to himself. Just like just another day at the office for him. But like, you know, um, it was after that too, man. It wasn't it wasn't the Joe Roman fight that got people thinking he was going to kill Ali because that was just a everybody knew that was going to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and and on top of that, uh, Roman had like talked a bunch of shit, like going into that fight, and Frazier. I never even knew that. I never, I never realized that. As I, I've just seen the beatdown, I never watched the whole up to it. That in the in the um, introductions in the in the um, final instructions, Roman like kind of growled at Foreman or something, or like yelled at him. He was like, Ugh! something yeah. stupid like that. <laughs> I'm just like, bro, are you he had, serious? He had talked a bunch of shit like leading up to the fight. Um, you know, Foreman had gone out around town in Tokyo and was like doing talk shows and all sorts of stuff like that. Like, you know, going out and I mean, 
I'm not trying to be culturally weird here, but dude, I can't imagine that seeing a dude that's like six three, six three and a half. You know, he had a kind of a funky fashion sense to George. George sometimes he was wearing like overalls that were, and then he had the hat and you know, and so he's like, man, he's like. Like he's literally family. out walking around in public in Tokyo, and there's crowds of people because they're just like, "What the fuck, bro?" Never he's obviously sticking that. out, is the point. And uh, anyway, but Roman was talking a bunch of stuff and in, in interviews leading up to the fight, and then yeah, he like did something or yelled or something like that during the introduction, and then uh, I guess well, you could just see it during the fight, dude. Foreman just walked through his ass and like was hitting him while he's down, you know, standing over him and shit after he knocked him down and just kind of like straddling him, putting his dick in his face, basically type of shit. It was bad. Just brutal stuff. But then the last, the last shot where he just goes limp and like crumbles into like a heap, like a literal heap of human being. That's a brutal knockout. And it is Jose Roman. So I'm not trying to say, but dude, that's brutal. There's a, and there's a pretty, I'm sure you know about this photo. There's a pretty, like, you know, wild photo after the fight where Roman is laying on the canvas in a fetal position, his eyes completely glazed over. And he's, like, laying there like that, right? And Al Braverman, I want to say it was his manager, or I think it was. Al Braverman was his manager. And he's yelling at the referee, getting into it. Not even looking at his fighter. Roman's laying there, like, there on the canvas out. And Braverman is arguing with the referee about how Foreman hit him while he was on the ground, which he did. But like he's arguing he with him instead of instead of trying to like look at his fighter who's clearly over there and like going through God knows what in his body, you know, in his, in his brain. And he has a bunch, you know, 15 different traumas happening at the same time. And instead of worrying about him, who was like, but you know, just shaking and shook like out of body experience and yeah, shit. Like totally, get this guy man. to the fucking hospital. <laughs> it's a it's a wild photo because he's there. He like there's a there's a photo of him. He's pointing. And they're like going back and forth. And then you just see Roman laying there just out, completely gone. But it's what he did to Ken Norton. Because Ken Norton had beaten Ali, you know, giving him all these fits and everything like that. And then what he does to Norton is just like, Norton, you know, we've talked about him and punchers and everything like that. This was bad. Like, I don't think Norton, when he saw what Foreman did to Frazier in Jamaica, had any idea that this would happen to him one day. But like, yeah, dude. You know, not only was it bad, it might have been even worse because, like, Frazier, I mean, Foreman just phew, obliterated him badly. <laughs> it, I mean, it's just something about Norton and his style. That kind of like the kind of like uppercut and kind of wide hooking uppercut type of like he couldn't get away from those punches, dude. That was the key to beating that kind of crab defense that he tried to always uh, employ. And he could against boxers like just he was a, he was a total nightmare, but against big punchers who would throw that shot, he couldn't get away. And he couldn't get away from Foreman, and obviously because of Foreman's strength. And Norton himself was strong as fuck. He's physically very strong guy, but could not get away, could not keep uh, from Norton Foreman. was shredded to gills, man. The dude was an Adonis, but... Yeah, and Foreman just pushed him into a corner. Just yeah. pushed him right into a corner and just fucking blap, 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 you know, whooped his ass. And the entire story behind that fight, too, is like borderline hilarious, basically getting... Uh, stuck up by venezuelan fucking authorities and trying to make getting taxed before leaving the country to the point where they call it the caracas caper 
because it was just a it was just a total shit show and we've talked about that too we've talked about we did a whole show about exotic fight locales and we talked about the whole this is this is just what happens it's like a it's some it's combination of like sports washing where there's like dictators are trying to bring this sports in to make the country not look so bad like they didn't just try to commit jewish fucking genocide or something like that you know like it's it's crazy dude like this is pretty much how it always happens but in any case <laughs> yeah the whole the whole thing turned into a shit show and ken norton winds up just absolutely obliterated his third loss against george foreman dude oh brutal it, it, it was really really bad but like you know foreman loses to ali that's been gone over for ray batum and then his career even though he has a few like you know he has the ron lyle award which is still you know beloved up till today and probably will be long after we're gone and um a few other fights but after the jimmy young fight people figure you know that's the end of it there was a couple of rumblings of, you know, A, they were hoping Foreman would come back in the late 70s and maybe fight Larry Holmes or whatever because the money was still there. But for the most part, it looked like, you know, he had rode off. And so when he came back in 1987, everyone was just kind of like, wait, what, what the fuck, really? And, and in his first years that we've talked about before, too, especially with the people he was aligned with, Rick Elvis Parker, of all people and stuff. It was, you know, it was a joke, man. Foreman was just going on the circuit and just beating up no hoper after no hoper, small guys, whatever. Just and honestly, it was getting away from Elvis Parker was a big part of making his comeback more legit. I mean, go listen Absolutely. to that show we did. But... Yes, yes, totally, 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 totally. But what really, you know, people still had questions about him. I think what really happened was around 1990 when he fought Jerry Cooney, another monster puncher in himself. Um, that's when people started like taking a little bit of notice, like, wait, whoa, whoa, okay. Because look, Cooney at this point was completely gone himself. All right. Cooney, you know, the early eighties was his early, once he lost to Larry Holmes, everything unraveled for him. He started to lose, you know, his career never really took effect. He'd have a couple of fights. It took a year off, took, had a couple of fights, take another year off. Then finally, you know, he get a big fight with Michael Spinks, got his ass whooped in that one kind of took, you know, retired again. Now, all of a sudden, he's fighting in this weird freak show come crossroads. No one really knows what to make of it. Fight with Foreman. But he still has enough name, and he's kind of, you know, not worn up and worn out enough. And he's younger than Foreman that they think this is, you know, a sellable fight. But the way Foreman just thrashed him, and not only that, not like took a solid punch in the first round, too, because Kearney hurt, Cooney hurt the shit out of him with a left hook. And Foreman, like, visibly wobbled, but is the way he finished him in that second round where people were just like, oh, oh, snap, you know? Because he walks in there, you know what I'm talking about, right? The first way he drops... Oh, dude, the, yeah, around. that walk-away hook uppercut. It's the, the finish, yeah. Just like he's throwing out the trash. That's the way I've been describing it. Because he just casually walks away. Just casually, boop, boop, yep. pow! <laughs> just, Couldn't give less of a shit about doing anything at all. It's the most... And, like, and that's the thing about the, when I say about freak punches, man. Because it looks like Foreman's not doing anything. He just literally just walks up, doop, boop, 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 and Cooney just drops like a redwood. Just That's why every single time, every single time somebody's talking about Michael Moore fight, and they're just like, it's fixed. And I'm just like, dude, you oh, just don't know. You don't even know anything. You don't know anything. Just look at this guy. Are you kidding me? Like, he just needs to move his hands. He doesn't need so to, like, 20, reach 50, way 20 back. Stitches that the stitches that the, that the doctor's put in Moore's mouth after the fight of fixed two, right? That was fake. Are you kidding me? Come on, dude absolutely ridiculous 
you know, that that Cooney fight, dude, like, you know, uh, Jerry was in really good shape. He sounded good. He still sounds good to this day. You know, he's, uh, you know, has not taken a ton of punishment, wasn't used up to that degree. You know, was just obviously past it. But yes. like you said, could punch. There's a, you can see, I think on YouTube, there's that interview after the fight with Foreman on like Letterman. And he's got a bad black eye, dude. His eyes all swollen and fucked up from taking that one punch from Jerry Cooney. That one that shot, was that was I it. Mean, Cooney was considered the hardest left hooker since Joe Lewis in some circles, man. He well, was a bad, bad dude. And so. even Foreman said during that interview, he was just like, you know, uh, Letterman or whoever it is, is like, you know, rate the hardest punchers. And he's like, well, Jerry Cooney's up there, dude. Look at my eye. You know, you fucked me up. And that's why Foreman started stepping on after that. He's like, all right, man, I can't play yeah, with you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was like, no, nah, this ain't going any deeper. Dude. But that, that was here. just up, uppercut, boom, boom, but. So he fights Holyfield, puts up a respectful challenge after that, you know, and then he kind of treads water a little bit, loses to Tommy Morrison, another monster foot, all that other stuff, right? So, like, again, going to the Michael Moore fight. Foreman doesn't deserve this title fight, but, you know, he gets it off in name value alone. And it looked like it would be an easy one for, for Moore for his first title defense and, you know, against big name anyways. But like you said, man, you know, the last thing to go on anybody is a puncher. George Foreman's 45 years old at this point. He's slow. He's clearly not the guy he was at 1990, let alone the fighter that he was back in the 70s. But he still knows how to throw punches in combination when necessary. And he's still savvy in there, even though he's slow in molasses. He's still savvy enough to, like, maneuver a guy into his bullshit if he, he can, you know. And that's what he was doing with Moore throughout the fight. Like, Moore kept on, like, you know, was out boxing, out boxing. But Moore, but Foreman, you would notice, too, Every so slay will all the time, like, would take him and kind of, like, because he's so strong, like you said, by the hip and just kind of force him into the side where he'd be able to boop, boop, hit him with something and keep him honest, you know? And then Mora would start going in Foreman, like, inevitably would start moving into his range. And then finally, in round 10, Foreman was having a good round. He's landing a couple of shots. And Gil Clancy, all-time great trainer, but a guy who trained Foreman in the 70s, after Foreman lost the belt, and so didn't, I think he was in his corner when he had the Jimmy Young fight, so he wasn't probably didn't have the best, you know, um, the best experience with him, obviously, was, you know, kind of talking junk throughout the fight. You know, oh, Foreman don't have the power for it. George is just tired. He's still trying, but he can't do it. He can't do it. Oh, yeah, Atlas, again with the Atlas. That's his last comment. Atlas, again with the Atlas. Boop, boop, and that was the last combination. But what Foreman did, if you saw it the first one, boom, boom, he hits him with a one-two, solid shit. And more... As he said later on, he was already out on his feet. He stops right there in place. And then the second one, two, bop, bop, hits him with a second one, two. And that's when he splays out. And you see the blood start welling up immediately in his mouth. And he just looks up and he's gone. Well, he's completely gone. You know, and there's no way that was anything. That he just became the 60-something, you know, yeah, or whatever, knockout. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that people just say. I mean, whatever. But it, there's just no fucking way, bro. There's no fucking way. And, and it that was, was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful moment and one I'll never forget as long as I'll, that's what made me a lifelong boxer fan. That knockout turned me. Yeah, I remember that too, actually. Yeah. It really yeah. did. I never experienced, I never, I never experienced excitement though, like at that point, the way I felt when I saw that. I never lost my mind. It was just something, like I knew I witnessed something incredible. And it was just, and then I, Lance, I remember that too, actually. It happened, it happened, made it even better. Because, like, I just knew everything. It was, it was incredible. Like, I just never experienced anything like that. I was just like, oh, my God, this wasn't supposed to happen. It just happened. 
and, and like the way Lampley goes, it happened. It happened. Foreman literally looking up at the sky seconds as Lampley says that looks up and then just drops to his knees in prayer. Just like, you can't write it. That's a fucking movie. You can't write a script better than that. Yeah. It's a good call. I will say it's a good call. And it's yeah. a call that Jim Lampley has been like, he's gotten mileage out of that for years and he will continue <laughs> to try to get mileage out of that. <laughs> I mean, and then he'll, yeah, and then he'll he fucking cry about Bill it. Clancy. He almost had Gil Clancy ruin it because immediately after they just could have left that after he said it happened, it happened. Clancy starts going, I can't believe it. I yeah. can't believe it. Here I am, a guy I said wasn't a puncher. It was too old. You're like, Gil, just shut up. Yeah, it ain't about your call, dude. <laughs> You're supposed to add to the moment, not fucking take away. And you're just Jesus. going on just yambling and just let the moment have for itself right there. It happened, just let it be. And there you go rambling about how you can't believe what happened. Like, bro, shut up. Clearly, you thought this wasn't going to happen and happened. get it. <laughs> and Foreman, that was the last knockout he scored, dude. I mean, it's not like he, uh, one thing that, uh, you know, that the Holyfield fight showed, and we talked about this recently too, the Holyfield fight showed that uh, Foreman's name was still massive and that he could command a lot of money. And so then the, uh, we, like I said, we talked about this and the way that the title kind of shifted around and all that type of shit. And, you know, Foreman and Holyfield at one point might have fought a rematch had the title not gotten kind of kicked around. But, uh, you know, in the meanwhile, as Foreman was trying to get that tight, trying to get a shot again, he got beaten up quite a bit, dude. Just even the Alex Stewart fight, dude, that did a lot of damage. There were a number of fights where even if he scored a knockout, they were like eighth, ninth, tenth round knockouts. He was going rounds, dude. He was taking damage. He wasn't moving his head a lot. He was kind of just wading in there and like knocking dudes out, but it was taking rounds. And so I think that by then, you know, like also by Tommy Morrison. Yeah, dude, it's just, you know, you're you're going in there again and you're and you're having that much trouble with a guy like Axel Schultz, you know, yeah. like you're going life and death with big Lou Savarese. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't good, dude. It wasn't. Re- it wasn't real good. Fight, you know what? The Briggs fight was a good send off for him because everybody knows he won that fight, and for him to perform the way he did against a guy like Briggs, who everybody you know was really high on, but realized it wasn't. But still, the guy has so much younger than Forming, and Foreman still kind of beat the brakes off him in the way he did. Like, you know, that was the perfect yeah. send off for him because what was he going to do? Fight Lennox Lewis or somebody at that point? Yeah, no, dude. At that point, would have been hurt, hurt, hurting. Bad. I, I mean, you know, the only fight I wish, and I'm, I know you agree, and a lot of people do too, that I wish he could have fought was Mike Tyson in 1990. Like, he, I, 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 I'm even thinking about that today. I still like drool thinking about that because, like, it would have been that the time was right and it should have happened when they had that doubleheader on HBO when Foreman flattened Adelson Rodriguez and Tyson knocked out Henry Tillman. But as I've said before, and other people won't agree with this because they're Tyson fanatics or whatever, but it's the truth. When Don King and others saw Foreman knock the shit out of Rodriguez the way they did, because they were all about the fight beforehand, but when they saw oh, that, with his heads all like cocked, yeah, dude, yes, that's yeah, that's yeah. a bad. Everybody pumped the brakes on that fight immediately afterwards, and they're like, "Hold up, wait a minute, ain't maybe we shouldn't do this quite right," because I think they saw what would have happened. And I'm sorry, but I think Foreman would have stomped Tyson in 1990. Yeah, and and I think that it's it's tough to say because Foreman a couple times said some shit like, "Oh, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd fight Tyson. He's too fast and stuff like that." No, but then won. there, but he then won. there were other times where he was like, "I want Tyson. I want that. You know, I want to fight that guy." 
So, I mean, I, I think that it, if you if it came down to it, Foreman would have fought him, and he probably would have beat him, dude. And honestly. in 1990, we're talking Tyson was at his chaotic worst. He had just lost to Buster Douglas. He's going through all kinds yeah. of stuff outside of the ring. He's definitely, you know, his training and the people he's aligned with. Not It's Kevin not the Hoover. best style for him either. Oh, no. And I think Tyson would even admit that, too. It just was going to be all bad for him. And Foreman was at, like, in terms of his comeback, Foreman was at his peak around 1990, 91. So, nah. And I mean, I know that Tyson's a different kind of puncher. I'm not saying he's not, but I'm just saying that, like, you know, Mike generally wasn't sleeping dudes with one punch. People no. can get people can get mad all they want, but he was a combination puncher, and he and it was and his. Foreman could take a shot, man. Say That's what I'm saying. Foreman could take a monster punch. Yeah. So it was his his speed and combination punching, and and his footwork as a heavyweight that was like people were like, holy shit. But it wasn't the one punch power per se. That's where people get it twisted, you know, because the nostalgia, it clouds so much. Especially when he's knocking the shit out of guys in 1985 and 86. And like, I get it, you know. Memories of yeah, all those I get it. But, but it's just that I don't think that he's taken Foreman out with like a punch or a combination or two. And, and, and when that doesn't that, happen... No, I don't think Mike reacts well. <laughs> because Mike's, as the level of competition for Mike went up, he started going the distance a little bit more. Yes, yep. he knocked guys out too, but it wasn't in the first round like it used to be. And, you know. Um, or, yeah, like, or not without trouble or something. Yeah, Quick Tillis took him 10. Mitch Green took him 10. Bone Crusher Smith took uh, Smith. Bone Crusher Smith, Tony Tucker. Look, I'm not going to say Smith didn't really try in that fight. You know, he kind of hung on and did whatever. But, I mean, like, he still and um tony tucker actually gave tyson a little bit of trouble in that fight and yeah uh, there were a couple of like taller dudes who were who just had good jabs that could kind of like clinch him and giving tyson the business for two rounds and looking incredible before tyson really turned it on and knocked the shit out of him so like you know i'm just giving you a thing by 1990 when tyson's life was complete chaos outside the ring and everything like that and foreman was peaking in terms of his comeback i think foreman would have whooped him it would have been a good fight you know it would have been a good fight but i think foreman eventually would have stopped it yeah, and it would have been a massive fight, but I think that I think that would have been a good time for Foreman to do it for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it would have been peak right after that. But you know, yeah, he had to be brought up. So who do you got? All right, let's see. Um, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this dude because he should be talked about. Let's see, we got some. We got a little bit of time here. I'm gonna talk about Sam Langford. Now it's a little bit tougher, obviously, because as we've talked about on other shows. Sometimes it's more difficult to assess fighters when you don't have nearly as much footage of them, of course. Of course. But as we've also talked about on other shows, it's a lot easier when you have footage of fighters they've kicked the shit out of or <laughs> fighters or fighters who have beaten them. Uh, but often is the case, you know, for Sam Langford, dude, we have footage of fighters he's defeated and fighters he's absolutely kicked the shit out of. Mm -hmm. And a couple and some footage, you know, of his fights as well. And we could see that, you know, you you brought this up earlier, uh, talking about old fighters and stuff like that, like with Ray, Ray Robinson and fighters holding up like their style holding up now. And Sam Langford's style holds up just fine, dude. It holds up 100% perfect. Oh, totally. Uh, the kind of guy who kind of like we were just talking about with Mike Tyson used his footwork to kind of create angles and like work around uh, his opponents and stuff like that. That stopped as he got heavier, like when later on in his career at heavyweight, like he got pretty fat. He was not moving around like that, I'm sure, but he could still punch. But the point being, he fought from like lightweight-ish, welterweight, all the way up to heavyweight. 
and was holding his own at heavyweight. Like not like, you know, uh, what's what's homeboy's name who was fighting at junior middleweight a couple of years ago and then was competing at, at cruiserweight um guillermo jones guillermo jones <laughs> not like homeboy where it was like you know he was competing in a division where it was like you know not quite as good and whatever but no like we're talking about he was actually competing against very good fighters at heavyweight like fought fucking joe gans <laughs> i was gonna say that man fought joe gans all the way to jack johnson i mean and not only Jack Johnson, though, but like no, the, the whole host yeah. of like heavyweights that he needed to fight and multiple times. That's what's so crazy, dude, is that in in a number of these fighters themselves from their own mouths were just like that guy was a bad mamma jamma. He could punch. And he was just bro. He was brilliant in the ring. You know, the way he would throw combinations, his footwork, everything. Like you said, his style holds up. It was beautiful to watch. There's um there's a really clean clip of him in his fight with fireman Jim Flynn, where he scores and where he knocks out Flynn, that racist, bumbling idiot. And um guy was awful. Just awful, awful guy, man. An awful human being. In all aspects, man. And when he fought Jack Johnson for the title, he just gave up after two rounds and decided to use his head as a battering ram, trying to like low blow Johnson with his head to give him headbutts to the groin before yeah. he finally got disqualified. Yeah, two two fights in a row two fights in a row he called jack johnson the n-word and then like three seconds later got knocked clean out like jack johnson was like what and then just fucking knocked him out like i i wish i had footage of it just so that i could be like here watch that and shut the fuck up it's awesome uh, there is a clean clip where um one of the some historian like you know restored fireman jim flynn um sam langford i forgot which fight it was but might have been that rematch, whatever. But you see before the fight, you know, Lanford looks like he's chewing gum and he just looks really confident in his robe and he's just, you know, shaking hands at everybody. And um, same thing, but during the fight, there's like one part, like Lanford's completely in control throughout it. You know what I mean? Kind of neutralizing Flynn and stuff. But Lanford threw a punch and felt kind of fell off balance, right? Bro, he does a cartwheel. Like he literally does a cartwheel and then in the middle of the ring, I'm not even bullshitting. Like he throws a punch, he falls off balance, kind of did a mini cartwheel got himself back on balance and landed an uppercut immediately afterwards, like in fluid motion. <laughs> like that was the type of shit he did. You know what I mean? Like this wasn't something he, he wasn't doing acrobatics every fight. It was just, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just so happened. He fell off balance and was like, yeah. whoopsie daisy. Like he literally yeah. caught himself with his glove flipped over a little bit and just boom, caught himself again, came in over. And I'm just like, bro, what? <laughs> you know, that was, it was awesome. And then the way he knocked him, he knocked him clean out. And he did that to plenty of heavyweights, 10 times the size of them. And, you know, what's even more brilliant about him is that he was able to do that when, like, he was losing his eyesight. He lost his eyesight, you know, relatively um, in the middle of his career. And he fought for years and years and years while his diminishing eyesight to the point where there was, you know, stories, because there's all kinds of stories of him, but there were stories that he said near the end of his career, he literally was getting in and just kind of touching the ropes and everything else to feel where he was because he couldn't really see anything else. Everything else was just a haze for him. We just look at look at him from his later years and the and brah you've seen the thickness of his glasses like like you know they joke coke bottle glasses like they literally they're like fucking that thick like yeah yeah, yeah. and i don't even know what that's doing at this you know what i'm saying like is that even doing anything i don't know but um another thing about sam langford too was that throughout his entire career and we've talked about this before and I'm not going to go on a rant about it too much, but just to kind of point it out, but then a number of black fighters around this time 
even extremely famous cartoonists who are generally speaking beloved in popular culture, Robert Edgren, for instance, drew some absolutely awful shit about black fighters in, in general. But in particular, I, d- I don't specifically know why, probably because he was so fucking good, like zeroed in on Sam Langford. Like you can't even find any like nice cartoons about Sam Langford. Just about every single one is depicting him as some beast or some sort of animal or some sort of weird like tribesman or something like that. Every single one has him speaking with like a super thick lisp and calling himself Tham with a, you know, TH and shit like that. I mean, all sorts of racist tropes, bro. Like they were on him. It was awful. And his entire career, dude, the guy's like five, seven, you know what I'm saying? He's a small little dude. And on top of that, you know, just knocking these dudes out or outboxing them, generally speaking, and having to uh, compete against bad press or what was basically press that was belittling him at every turn, just shitty stuff, dude. And despite that still wound up having a career as great as he did and never wound up getting uh, the title shot that he felt he was deserved and almost certainly, you know, deserved, but also even later on in life, never even like begrudged anybody, you know, wasn't even like mad about it. Didn't really live mad about it. He was cool about it, man. And he was probably more like, and as more people, and most people will tell you, man, he was more respected and well-liked than Jack Johnson clearly was. Like, people would say if Sam Langford had become champion that era, like, you know, I'm sure there would still be grumblings and there would obviously be a lot of, like, you know, um, um, great white hypes trying to find or whatever it may be. But at the same time, they would still just kind of be like, you know what, it's like they, they can respect him more because Langford was a low-key guy. You know, he didn't really try to cause any trouble or anything. He was just a prize fighter. He just wanted to shot like anybody else. He wasn't out there trying to be braggadocious and trying to talk a bunch of shit and, you know, marry random white women and just, you know, generally pick at the pick at the public and try to antagonize them. Which, you know, in my own way, I, I, I respect Jack Johnson for how he was and what he did, but, like, Langford was just a whole different animal. Yeah, he was he was more of a pure fighter. You know, like, definitely more of a... Yeah. And but, they, even their styles were completely different. What I mean by that, like totally different. Like Langford went in there; he was he was much more pleasing to watch. Much oh yeah, more to watch than Johnson. Oh like yeah. Like you said, if you watch their styles and how they hold up today, Langford's style holds up a hell of a lot more than Johnson's does. Like Johnson, one hundred percent. You know his style could you know play out today, especially in the heavyweights of the way they clinch a lot and different things like that. But Langford's style, man, he would yeah, he'd be a superstar. Yeah, we've talked about that before, and just Jack Johnson's fights just don't hold up, dude. He he leaned on the rules quite a bit, oh. and whatever, that's fine. But that was one of the great crimes, you know, of of that era was that Langford was never given a shot after Jack Johnson became champion because yeah, he well, had. I mean, and, and that's and that's bullshit because like he did fight Joe, he fought Joe Gans for the lightweight title, right? Uh, n- was it no. was it for the title or was it like a non-title fight? No, it was a non-title fight. I, th- okay. I don't even know that they weighed in. Hmm. Was it a draw? Or was it that he beat? Yeah, he beat Gans by decision. He right? beat Gans, yeah. yeah. And then. Damn, now you Gans. got me questioning myself. I'm going to have to go look. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost positive that it was not for the title, but now I'm going to have to double check. I know that he fought Gans, and then, like, I know he fought Ketchel as well, but that definitely wasn't for the strap. 
Yeah, that was that was a four round. That was yeah. A, yeah okay, so he weighed in at one forty. Gans at one thirty five. So okay. that it couldn't have been for the title because yeah, he wouldn't yeah. have made weight. But that was yeah. The fight with Ketchel was uh, just a four round fight that was like you know not an exhibition, but like didn't quite have it. Was just about every report said that it was heating up as it ended, basically in the fourth round. But it's just like you know one of those type of things. But like you said, he wasn't bitter about never getting a title shot. Even and what's more interesting too is that we remember how we discussed last week about Jack Johnson and his um, relationship with Joe Lewis and how they didn't get along, and Lewis ended up hating him and resentment and all that other stuff. Guess who ended up getting close with Joe Lewis? Sam Langford. And the reason why? Jack Blackburn. See, because Jack Blackburn liked Sam Langford because they obviously had a big series of fights between each other yep. as well. Um, contemporaries, they both respected the shit out of each other. Um, Jack Blackburn did not consider Langford an asshole that kind of held, held his contemporaries back. So, yeah. Um, you know, he felt that Langford could be an asset in terms of like offering Lewis advice and stuff like that. And even though Sam was completely blind, but it was, you know, there's like full those photos of Langford and Lewis together. And, you know, there was a lot of notes and it was depicted in the movie as well. The, um, the Joe Lewis story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 The with Coley Wallace, the Coley Wallace. Yeah. Look just like Joe Lewis. It was perfect. And, um, they when they depicted him in the movie and they had Sam Langford come meet with Lewis and they had the little playoff where like you know him and Blackburn like had a little standoff and they were talking about their fights together and all that stuff so yeah yeah that's a good scene too that's a good little a like, exchange I, I love that scene I can say it word for word because it was awesome back then you know like Sam you know you never whipped me three times you tried it three times it was draw that third time you tried it and he was like come on Chappie you know I whipped you you want me and he was like don't talk don't lie to the boy you want me to whip you again Blackburn Lake. I say good day to you, Sam. <laughs> there's a. I think you're the one who actually linked me to it. But there's a, an interview with an older Sam Langford uh, on YouTube. That's you know, okay. it's only a couple minutes long, but like uh, you know, they are, they talk to him about some stuff and like you know, he's his he, he looks awful. Like you know, he just okay. he looks like he can't see he can't see for shit. He's blind, but you know, it's it's interesting at least because he talks about some of the stuff from his career. There's that one. There's another one of um, the only, I think, the only film that's known about Barbados, Joe Walcott, where he's sitting, you know, in his janitorial in his janitorial outfit. Mm -hmm. He's on MSG and he's like talking about the past and stuff like that. That's a good one too. Yeah, it's similar to that. It's really similar to that. That one's really cool too because you hear him talking. He was like, "Yeah, that Joe Kowinski." He was like, "When I fought him, and when I fought him back at the LA club, and everyone thought, you know, I was going to be in trouble because I was so small. I was in trouble. Kowinski was in trouble." I knocked him out good. And he was like, Jim Corbett, after I saw what I did to Kowinski, he didn't want to fight me. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's so it's, cool to hear those old timers talking, those old interviews like that. Yeah. Walcott there right there. Yep. Yeah, it's it's actually crazy how scarce photos of him are. I know. You know, for years, I always wanted to own a wire photo of him, that famous one of him holding the mop and everything while he's in his outfit. And I've never seen one for sale. I, I don't know. I, I look semi-frequently for photos of him because I want more photos of him, but they're just, they're just not out there. You would think more people would maybe try to reach out to him or something. There's that only that interview. Cause I think he died soon after that. He got hit by a car, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Shit's crazy, but it's, yeah. just, it's cool to hear him talking. He was like, yeah, you know, he was like, I wish I was still in shape. He was like, you know, I can go back in there with the boys 
And I like how he like almost talked about them like they're his bros. You know what I mean? Like the different guys he find, go back in there with the boys, make some good money again. You know what I mean? Have myself a couple of Rolls Royces or two. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's it's a uh, the the kind of fraternity or whatever the circle, the boxing circle back then must have been very different. That's for sure. Totally, totally. But we can fit in a couple of more. I'm gonna go actually a little bit more contemporary. For, um, and it's probably going to be one that, again, we've talked about him before and because he's obviously very polarizing. But if you talk about massive punchers, especially the lower weight divisions, you have to mention Nassim Ahmed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. For sure. That's a pretty good one. I mean, especially if you're going lower weight divisions, dude, the guy had a, a very... This, man. I'm not going to stay on him for long. We've talked about him before on other shows, but like Ahmed... It, I get it. Like, it's easy to hate him because of his attitude, the way he would talk, all this other stuff. His style was really erratic, and it's easy to make fun of his fight with Barrera because he got absolutely clowned in that fight, right? But, like, look at his body of work. I, 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 I hate that, dude. I, I hate, hate that, that that's always brought up. Him. And, that's what, and, that, and people shit on him because of that. Oh, Ahmed sinks, man. He sucks. He's in the realm of this because Barrera did X, Y, and Z. I work. know. Like, Barrera's some bum or something, you know? And not only that, but they just act like, you know, because he lost that one fight and the way it ended and everything that like he was just some some sort of mirage that didn't do anything. Dude, Hamed cleaned out the featherweight division practically before that. All right. And like in the junior featherweight division, like he was a beast during his time. He was making the way he would hit guys and just make grown men cry. All right. Look at Billy Hardy's face, who was a tough as nails guy after he got punched once by Hamed in 30 seconds. It looked like he just got hit with a steel hammer to the face um manuel medina there was tons of guys back then that were like that that got beat up man like hamed had absolute bone breaking power the only thing and he had an awkward style too because he came from that you know brendan ingwell awkward as hell school that was just a pain in the ass to fight any of those guys you know harold graham style yep. so combine that but then combine one punch knockout power and you have a nightmare style to fight like just a dude who just I, you can't touch him. He's coming from different angles. And even if he looks like he's off balance, he can still cook your ass with one punch. Yeah, he had uh, he had started, he had gone into the Ingle gym as a teenager, I think. And so he'd started fighting and he developed that style since fairly yeah. young. And like you said, that uh, Harold Graham, <clears throat> that kind of style, like that he was kind of the predecessor to Nassim Hamed and like the purveyor of that style or whatever um that really herky-jerky awkward style where uh, you know the fighters just kind of like uh very lengthy and just kind of swaying from one side to the other but then still able to hit you from those angles that are just impossible yeah. that was a big part of what made Nassim Hamed so effective but obviously he had heavy hands because just being just throwing punches from weird angles isn't going to give you punching power he obviously had heavy yeah, hands. Yeah, calves. You just saw, man. Like he just he had unnatural power. You know, some guy super unnatural. And he was, yeah, like he was a short guy, but he was stocky. Like he wasn't, you know. For, by the way, he made one twenty six, but you can see like the thickness to him. You saw it in his legs. You saw it in his arms a little bit. Like he was a strong guy, and just the the leverage he was able to get on some of them shots, man. He just clean, smooth out. And, trying to um, think who it was but one of who was it who he did that like leaping kind of hook and it's like he jumped when he knocked him out and the dude's head hit the canvas so hard that the ref is like diving to get him and Hamed is like still like flying across the ring from the punch he threw by the time the dude like hits the deck I can't remember who it was it might have been Sergio Leendo 
but it was but right around that last, time. It lasted like a few seconds because it could have been Saeed Lowell. It um, might have been, but man, it was, it might have been, but I just remember that was just like, one of those, I think he still holds the record for quickest featherweight knockout ever, actually. Featherweight title fight knockout. Just brutal, he dude. Flattened him. He flattened, I mean, all those guys during that time. And here's the thing, too, that's pretty fascinating. After he beat Steve Robinson, so then we're going back to like 19, or 1995, early 96 time, right? By the time he beats him, this is when he already started not giving a shit in the gym. Like he already started like, you know, slacking and training and doing stuff. So the people that like, you know, by the time he starts fighting Manuel Medina and Tom Johnson and starts being featured on Showtime before he eventually moved on to HBO, um, they weren't even seeing Ahmed at 100%. You know what I mean? Like Ahmed that people were seeing in the early, early 90s when he was first coming up before he was featured on anything was like the whirlwind that people were just like, holy shit, no one's ever seen anything like this. By the time he already started going, he started slacking. He wasn't even training anymore, practically. He was already past it to a degree. And by the time he got to HBO and he started fighting Kevin Kelly and the rest of them, he was even past it from what he was doing on Showtime. Yeah, his team has already started to splinter, you know, and that's he had been with the same team or members of the team for such a long time. And then on top of that, he he had an entourage. He had members of his family on his team. I think I want to say it was two brothers, yeah, um yeah i remember, remember one of them looked like a twin like he always he had the same hair he had the same sunglasses he always yep. saw him around in the background he never said a word he was just there <laughs> dude it, it was like he had an entourage dude he had an entire uh entire group of people he was he had an adidas sponsorship he had a couple yeah. other sponsorships um <clears throat> you know he was big time like dude. early on and before like fighters were getting big ones it was tough to get an adidas sponsorship for boxing yeah, dude, and he was big time, especially for a fighter of that weight class, because I remember back in the day, dude, I remember my brother, who was like, he was just a general sports fan. He wasn't yeah. like a, you know, he knew some boxing, but he'd be like, dude, what's up with this Prince guy? You know, what's up with Prince Ahmed, you know, and he was asking, because he knew, and I mean, he was big time, dude, he was super fucking big time, but like you said, uh, his team had already started to go, we see that pattern with a lot of fighters where like they make it big or like they start to get more famous and then it just kind of like the priority shift dude stuff changes and uh i guess the old the the famous quote from Hagler, you know it's tough to get out of get out of bed at five in the morning with silk silk pajamas on and i mean it's he might have meant it literally but it's a pretty good metaphor for what happens after you become famous as a fighter and stuff you know and losing you totally the hunger started, and you totally started in the style because you saw him um just like, he was struggling against certain guys, like, guys he should have blasted out. Like, Cesar Soto, that was an awkward, ugly, ugly fight. Um, Paul Engel, he went rounds with before he finally stopped him. Um, he went the distance of Wayne McCullough, but everybody pissed. That doesn't matter. But, like, you know, the only time he looked somewhat similar to his older self is when he knocked out poor Vianney Bungu, who just, you know, was completely flummoxed for what he what Ahmed did to him. But, like, yeah, man, it was just, you know, Bahamed's power was always able to bail him out. And, you know, the prevailing factor today is that everyone's like, oh, he ducked Juan Manuel Marquez. He ducked Marquez. He ducked Marquez. Well, let me uh, – one one thing, all right? Was Marquez mandatory challenger for him? Yes, he was mandatory challenger for a long time for Hamed. Was Hamed actively looking to fight him? No, because he was looking to fight more, you know, big fights at that point. How, Marquez wasn't known. Contrary to popular belief, Marquez wasn't one of the most popular Mexican fighters ever of all time. I know. People like to retcon that shit. Like, you know, everybody knew Marquez. No, they didn't. Dude. No, they didn't. No, not, right? a, not, not back then. Don't lie. No, the only times he was ever featured was randomly on Fox Sports once in a while. All right? And Hamed was looking for big fish. It, well, so, he didn't have an exciting style, dude. You know, he yeah. wasn't. He's always been a counterpuncher. 
And then keep this in mind also, by the time they, Hamed offered him the fight, you know, he offered him, he offered a few other guys, including Marquez. They all turned him down when he finally fought Augie Sanchez. So there you go. But before then too, when Marquez was finally getting a lot of attention, everyone's like, oh, he's the mandatory challenger to Hamed. Hamed don't want to fight him, blah, blah, blah. He finally gets a fight with Freddie Norwood, another guy who was always avoided on HBO. That was going to be his big opening, you know, his opening party where it was like, now he was going to show his shit because Norwood was looking erratic as hell for a while at that point. And he looked like he was ripe for the taking. You saw that fight. That's one of the worst fights that was ever aired on television. Like, dude, yeah, just fight. two, two, the bad styles. Just don't mix those styles, dude. But Marquez it- legitimately lost that fight. And. It's kind of, you watch that one and you look at that and you see Norwood as a southpaw and everything. And then, you know, Mark has clearly got better over the years and he's a great fighter and obviously a legit Hall of Famer, yada, yada, yada. But like back then, I'm not sure if he was even ready for Hamid. Well, and that's, that's a possibility too. You know, a lot of people would say like, oh, you scared of him, blah, blah, blah. Marquez would have knocked him out or something, but dude, there's Marquez no guarantee. Wasn't the Marquez that you think of. This wasn't the Marquez yeah. that fought Pacquiao. There's no guarantee here, dude. Like, and that's, that's another thing is that, yeah, Marquez had taken some punishment by that time, but he'd also gained a lot of experience. So, you know, it's, there's no guarantee, but even so, um, you know, to that Augie Sanchez fight, oh my gosh, dude, that is a really rough rough knockout dude and augie sanchez too i posted a photo of him with floyd mayweather from way back in the day just the other day augie sanchez was a really really good amateur who defeated floyd mayweather i think maybe more than once yes. and uh and i mean I beat him in the box office i think i think to to um to uh to beat him you know to make the team I I I don't even know specifically when i'm not gonna lie to you but i'm pretty positive he beat him and i think more than once yeah, um, but point is, like you know, he was a he was a good up and coming fighter. Uh, he'd only lost once to that point, but he was you know very thought of as very talented, pretty tough, scrappy for sure. Um, but dude, Hamed just absolutely wrecked his shit, and not without some trouble. But just that that last like thirty second sequence is some brutal, brutal stuff, man. That's bad to watch, man. It's it's a vicious knockout. And like then you they, could see how he'd be favored. And then when you find out too that like Sanchez got tested and you found out that he was actually prone to being knocked out and concussed, makes it kind of even worse because he got taken, he got stretchered in that fight. Yeah, he yeah, he that was a really cold knockout, dude. Yeah, that was really bad. But Hamed had to be mentioned, man. He's just one of those guys, polarizing figure, but you can't deny he might be the hardest punching featherweight in history, or if not the hardest one, he's certainly and definitely top, among them. Among That's them. for sure. Definitely among them. Well, there even back in the day, dude, there were those uh, gym stories of him like knocking fools out in the gym. Who knows how how true those ever are, but still, you know, like people listen. People listen when there's gym stories, and I remember there there being gym stories. You think you recognize him on the street today if you saw him? Man, I've seen some photos. That's what I'm saying. That's why I asked. I'm not sure. Recognize him on the street today if you saw him. I'm not so sure, but he'd probably, I'd probably like not even think twice and talk some shit and then he'd knock me out or something, you know? I mean, I'm not going to pick a fight with him. I'm just like, he's certainly not. I don't know if I would, but bless him, bless him, you know, but um, that's actually about all I have time for. I apologize for cutting it a little bit short on the show, but I do have to kind of get going. Um, But dude, 
like I said, at the, on, on the outset, though, we might even do it like a third part because it's like now I'm kind of you have thinking to do a of, third part, man. There's a ton of other guys to still make. We, we keep getting to the end and going like, damn, we didn't talk about this. This. I'm this, not this, sure this. if we'll do it exactly very next, but I mean, we'll definitely have to do a third part. Yeah, no, we'll have to do a third part. We can circle back to it at any point. But, dude, I appreciate you also. I mean, not like you did a bunch of work watching knockouts, dudes. Come on, that ain't work. That's what we but do. Not. No, it's uh it is it is some work though, you know. It is some work to kind of like just uh put a little bit of thought into it so we're not I just I mean about the stories that we do and the mention the different various things that we bring up and all that. Clearly, you know, some work going into it. Yeah, we gotta we gotta dive into our memory banks here for this a little bit. But no, it's fun. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you uh putting in the work and having these discussions with me, man. Always appreciate it. For sure. Well, everybody who listened in. We appreciate you. If you listened in on the podcast apps, whichever one it might be, go ahead and subscribe and send us a rating, leave a comment, those kinds of things. Appreciate it. If you watched on YouTube, thank you. Also subscribe, leave a comment, et cetera. As far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram. Also on Twitter, though, and also individually, we're on Twitter. Eris is on Twitter as PunchZoneEris. I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. We'll talk to you there. That's where we are mostly. But Eris, I'll talk to you soon, bro. Absolutely, everybody. Thanks for listening as always. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.